Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 33, Going Postal. All right, we finally made it to Going Postal, which is one of the perhaps most well-beloved Discworld novels for a lot of people. This is a a novel that a lot of people actually recommend reading first to a lot of newcomers to the series. It's not the book I recommend reading first, but I know a lot of people who do. It's not the one I would recommend either. No, I, I, no, I I enjoyed this book. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about that, but it, it is interesting to me that this is the one that a lot of people do recommend. It was released in 2004. It's the 33rd Discworld book as per the episode. It's the fifth book in the Industrial Revolutions branch of the Discworld. What were the four that... Because there was there was The Truth, right? Moving Pictures, The Truth, oh, okay. The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents, and Monstrous Regiment. Do they really count? Yeah, those are the ones that most people group together. And okay. I, it, might, it might just be because of, like, they're all about change in technology or change in government or change you know what i mean like major shifts into modernity and so i think that's why they count them together but it is also the first book in a trilogy of books featuring moist von lipwig who gets introduced in this book so this is the only the first only the first moist story we're gonna say the word moist (laughs) a lot on this uh on this episode so again trigger warning i know for a lot of people moist is a word that they like would like to gouge their ears out rather than hear. I apologize. That is his name. That we're just going to say it a lot. So we're all going to get used to it. We should somehow come up with a version of this that people who hate the word moist can listen to. And it's like every time <laughs> we say the word moist, someone has auto dubbed a text to speech that says Albert Spangler. <laughs> this book was on the shortlist for both the Nebula and Locus Awards for Best Fantasy Novel. It also was shortlisted for the Hugo Award for Best Novel, um, and it Damn. would have probably it actually probably would have been nominated, except for that Pratchett actually withdrew it from contention because he felt that he would be too stressed out over the award, um, like the nominations and the awarding process, and it would mar his enjoyment of Worldcon, which is the conference where the Hugo Awards are presented. I think that's a fascinating story because, on the one hand. It was the first time he had been shortlisted for that award. So it like he had never won a Hugo before this. So it's it would almost seem like he would be excited. I mean, I don't know what his exact reaction was, but it's interesting that he was just like, no, I just want to go to Worldcon and enjoy myself and like see my friends. I don't want to have to deal with all the award stuff, which I think is fascinating. So did he n- never win a, a Hugo then? You know, that's a great question. And I love that we're having this conversation because actually, I believe as of the day we're recording, this is actually the day of this year's Hugo Awards ceremony. Yeah, because I know like Snuff won a bunch of awards. Like that's the one. And that's why and we, we've mentioned this before, why all the like newer printings of them will say from the author of Snuff. And that was also one of the ones on the like best fantasy books of all time or of the century or whatever list. Pratchett never won a Hugo. It was his own choice, though, because Going Postal would have received the nomination, but he turned it down saying the anxiety would ruin Worldcon for him. So, yeah, that seems to be Going Postal seems like the one that was nominated. I don't know if they would have nominated other books, but then we're like, oh, he doesn't want us to nominate them. I, I don't know. 
But yeah. it is interesting to me that he never actually won a Hugo. But that should tell you that this book is considered very high up in terms of its literary qualities for a lot of people, especially um, critics. So I think that that's a really interesting way of approaching this book as well. And again, like this is one of those books that is one of the first ones that comes up for a lot of Pratchett fans when they're talking about best Discworld books. A lot of people love this book and a lot of people love this whole trilogy. So I'm very interested to see what you think as we go through these books. Yeah. What year did you say this book came out? 2004. So it would have been contention to 2005, Hugo's. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, just because I was thinking then of like the awards that this was nominated for. And the only other one that I know was nominated for and won all three then was American Gods. But that was 2001. And I was just like, I know it's around the same time. Well, just a few years before. I, I mean, I, I respect it. I, I really do. Like, if you're going to a conference and you're like, I just want to hang out with my friends. I don't really care about this. You know, like, this isn't something that I'm in this business for. It's not that awards aren't great. I always read. I try to read as many of the Hugo Award nominees every year as I can. Mm, I'm doing that with the... Um... The, the Booker Prize ones for for this year at the minute. I think that's one of the most useful things about book awards is sort of creating this reading list that you might never experience otherwise. And because especially with a lot of these, like the, the Booker Awards and even like the Nobel Prize in Literature ones, but now more so as well, the fantasy side with the Hugos and stuff, you get a lot of like non-white, non-European and American people Mm-hmm. actually nominated for them now which is good like because you're actually then discovering them because they're up for the these awards and so people then who do that who just go like oh i'm going to read all of the selections for this year's x prize whatever they'll like discover that i've definitely been introduced to a lot of writers through the hugos that i would not have probably known about otherwise including a lot of writers of color a lot of queer writers um, for example, N.K. Jemison is still the only person to have won the Hugo Award for Best Novel over three consecutive years. Um, she's also the first to win for all three novels in a trilogy for her Broken Earth series. So, like, you know, there are massive strides being made in a lot of these awards. And actually, funnily enough, I just do you want to hear it? Like, this is kind of a tangent, but it's kind of a fun story. I, I love fun tangent stories. Sometimes we talk about Terry Pratchett. Okay. So, do you know that the Tip Tree Award, it was formerly known as the Tip Tree Award, they changed the name of it to the Otherwise Award because Tip Tree was not someone who maybe we wanted to um, emulate in terms of uh, gender um, acceptance? Anyway, so Mm. I was looking on, uh, I was looking at the sci-fi and fantasy threads on um, Blue Sky. And I have to back up to give you some context for this. So during my during my composition exams, you have to create a reading list that you read for your exams and your advisor approves it and they like come up with questions based on the books. But the idea is that you're supposed to become a subject expert in your field. So I had to basically create a list of a lot of different sci-fi books. And, and especially I had to create a, a list of books, sci-fi books about like androids and robots and cyborgs. And one of the books that everyone said that they that should be on the list was this book called The Fortunate Fall by Raphael Carter. It was a book that was written in the early 90s, and it was actually out of print. So I actually had a really hard time finding it. 
because I it just wasn't available anywhere online or anything like that. But I did find a copy of it. I read it for my reading list. And I was like, this is one of the most beautiful books I've ever read in my life. Like, seriously, I cried so much reading that book. It's gorgeous. Um, it's very queer. It's very cyberpunk. Um, it, it It's such a good book in so many ways. But I couldn't figure out anything about the author all I knew about it was that it had won at what well, at the time was called the Tip Tree Award, now called the Otherwise Award. But like a lot of people, like on Wiki and stuff, had talked about how it was the only book by this person um, that they had kind of disappeared. And frankly, I was a little afraid that this person was dead. To be completely honest with you, which would have been really sad because, like, again, this book is like one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. Fast forward to. A couple of days ago when I'm sitting there reading reading this thread on Blue Sky and I see somebody post who said in their post like, oh, The Fortunate Fall is getting a new re-release by Tor Books for their Tor Essentials series, which I'm definitely getting a physical copy of that book. I'm like very excited about it. And it, the person who was who had posted this said like, oh, yeah, and the cover is beautiful, you know, um, and, you know, I'm really excited that people get to see this version of my work. And I was like, hold up. Is this like the author of this book? It's like a completely different name. I like clicked on their account. It is actually. It turns out that uh, this person is trans and has uh, fully, fully transitioned. Massive. Her name is Cameron Reed. She her pronouns are she they. And this is her bio on Blue Sky. Author of The Fortunate Fall, Tour 1996, Tour Essentials, August 2024. I won the Otherwise Award under its dead name and my dead name, which I think Yo. is just like perfect. Chef's kiss. Yeah. So, so def- tangent, I know, but I was so happy to find that out um, and to also find out that a new edition of that book was coming out. I recommend it to anyone who likes cyberpunk or who just loves beautiful writing. We should get back to Pratchett uh, now that we've got this like long tangent. No, it's not a tangent. It's it's relevant because okay. okay, Albert Spangler is a dead name from Moist von Lipwig. There you go. Perfect. I'm so glad you Died brought that back, back around. Perfect. So quick summary. Moist von Lipwig is a con man, but his crimes have finally caught up to him in Ankh-Morpork. As you said, he is hanged, but is saved from the gallows by Lord Ventinari, who offers him a choice die or revive the city's derelict post office. He accepts the position reluctantly, but soon realizes that the job might require all his cunning to survive the competition. Nigel, what were your first thoughts on this novel? From the very start of it, this was so fucking good. Yeah. Like, I loved this book. It's a fun, like, I love con men characters, just as an archetype. And especially, like, in literature, when you can read their thought process and can see, like, how their schemes are working. It's why I really loved The Lies of Locke Lamora, because it was just this, like, expert con going on. I didn't like the the sequels to it uh, as much, but that was such fun to read. And then you have it, like, in Discworld, and you have them interacting with Venonari, which is just, like, those two forces meeting is brilliant. But then also... Inside of that, you have what's essentially like a corporate espionage plot. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this. And to be fair, like we've 
sometimes we have had this critique of some Pratchett books. The one that comes to mind specifically is Reaper Man, where we're like, okay, like there's a lot of plot lines in this and like say this plot line and this plot line don't really belong here. They should be like another book. This oh, one you had mean a the lot... shopping mall thing? Yeah, the shopping yeah. mall thing. Yeah. <laughs> this one really felt like everything went together. Like everything felt very organic, even though there was so many, even though there were so many different strands that came together. Like you said, we have the con men aspect. We have the corporate espionage um, part of this. We have this like very effective critique of capitalists and capitalism, especially venture capitalists. We yeah. have a, you know, we have a sort of mystery that's going on. You know, at the same time, we have uh, an infrastructure story, which is, you know, we haven't had one of those in the disc world where it's like, okay, like I'm going to actually take this piece of infrastructure and make it work. So yeah. yeah, there's a lot of different things going on in here. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I fucking love stories like in a fantasy setting. That like show how things are run. Like I love court politics and intrigue. I love like finding out deep lore and how magic works. And like getting into the belly of like the infrastructure of the the postal system. And this was the same for me, bizarrely. Yeah, it's very interesting to me. Like how much this book is about systems, right? Uh, how do systems work? Um, how does engineering work? How do people work? You know what what causes institutions like the post office or even businesses like the clacks to work because there's a lot of in here also about the sephamore business as well um so we'll definitely try to pull all of these different threads apart uh, before we get to that and the characters though i did want to point out just so i don't forget later it's the first adult pratchett book that has chapters um previously we had only seen chapters in his young adult novels and the chapters have kind of short little um it's not a summary it's like a um like a teaser section <laughs> at the beginning of each one it kind of reminded me of like some of jules verne's work or some of the like oh yeah victorian that was like, yeah, yeah that was all the rage actually i read a book recently that it came out in 2013 which was written in the style of like an 18th century novel um and it had all of that at the start the like in which uh, yeah, it's it's the Luminaries by Eleanor Catton, which won the Booker in uh, 2013. What do you like about them? Because it's so, like, I mean, I understand, like, archaically, like, especially when things were published in installments, you're meant to, like, that's how you're meant to hook people, you know, where it's like you see, yeah. you can see right from the, the start what's going to happen to the people you've already read about. And it does that without like giving away too much. But then like when people incorporate it into newer stuff, it's like an extra fun thing to do because you don't need to like rely on that as a method for getting people to keep reading unless like uh, Eleanor Cat and you're writing in a specific style. So when things do that, I just think it's really neat. Let me read an example. So I'm just going to read the little the little part at the beginning of chapter five. Chapter five, Lost in the Post in which Stanley experiences the joy of Saks, Mr. Grote's ancestral fears, Horsefry is worried, Reacher Guilt, a man of society, the stairway of letters, mail slide, Mr. Lipwig sees it, hoodwinked, the postman's walk, the hat. I think what I like about this is, like you said, it kind of works as like a hook. I mean, like you said, maybe it's not as necessary in a fully published novel like this, like it would be in a serialized story. 
But it kind of works as a hook because you're like, yeah, I kind of want to know what a mail slide is. I want to know what the postman's walk is. But it doesn't actually give anything away. And it creates this really fun reading experience where as you're reading the chapter, you're like, oh, that's what that was. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like it's really interesting to me. I have the same thing when I'm reading a book and the, the chapter names are all like phrases that happen in the chapter. Yeah. So then you're like, you're like looking for them and you're like, that's where it's from. Yeah, exactly. You're like, it's kind of like a scavenger hunt, which yeah. I think is really fun. I also think that because this is an older form of introducing chapters, that it is supposed to more closely tie this book and this whole series, this whole trilogy with the Industrial Revolution specifically, because it is the Victorians who give us that Industrial Revolution. So by kind of shifting the way that this book is written, Pratchett is signaling to us that this is going to be a major shift in techno the technology of the Discworld, something that's going to change like economies even. And to that point, I think it's really interesting. This far into Discworld, we have a book about the postal system when for so long we've had books now that led up to the like creation of things like hex and, and quantum stuff and then the clacks being built and then becoming major players in stories and, like how things are transferred and then obviously in the fifth elephant that's like the instigator to part of the plot there and so now we have the, like we're sort of going back while going forward in yeah. terms of like technology yeah, and I definitely want to talk about that because I do think well, we could talk about it right now. Yo, let's. <laughs> I do think it's interesting that at the heart of this book, it's really this idea that what is the better way to communicate? Is it the Cephamore, the Clax, which has more in common, even though it's a very different technology than, say, a computer, it has a lot in common with like the internet and emails, more common yeah. than than the post office does. Yeah, we see that with the page that they have where it's like it's got pictures on it. And the way they talk about that is re like how they transmit the pictures really yeah. feels like 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 how they sort of encrypt data and and, and code, just code that. in general. Yeah, yeah. like H like H entering in information through HTML or CSS or, you know, something like that. Like those are all information languages. HTML is the content, CSS is the aesthetic, what it looks like. So you would put color in CSS, for an example. So yeah, I think that that is a really interesting development when it comes to the Cephamore, because we've had some, like, we've had some explanations about the Cephamore, but we haven't really had a look into the business itself, or really the towers themselves, um, the same way that we do in this book. It's interesting to me that in this book, the Cephamore is a symbol of progress, but it's not held up as being better than the post office. Like, that was a great contrast. Because, like like you say, the, the sort of, like, positioning them not necessarily as better. Like, the whole, like, Moist is, he's fighting a losing battle. Like, he's fighting uphill, where he knows that, like, when the clacks are fully operational and if there wasn't sabotage and things he'd stand no chance but because they're being strangled by like poor maintenance and venture capitalism he has the advantage but like his promise isn't really to beat the clacks it's always like it'll get it'll take longer but it will be cheaper 
Yeah, it's cheaper and it's more personal. That's the other thing that he he says. You know, you can't you can't send you a can't swalk, swalk, right? Yeah, you yeah. can't swalk a, a clax. What did you think about that? I haven't written a letter in the mail in so long, but this kind of made me want to write one. So did I. The last time I I wrote letters in the mail was to my ex uh, during quarantine. That was really? a big thing. I don't know if it, yeah, I don't know if it was with you, but like, I, I mean, a lot of people in my sort of social circle here in Ireland were doing that. They were like, oh, I'm going to just start mailing people, you know, like DM me your address and I'll send you a letter. And so that was all happening. And then I just was like, we were like, oh, this would be a nice thing to do between me and my ex. Yeah. We were doing that. But yeah, they're like, there was a, this just increase in letter writing here and i feel like that's the same thing where in this in this time when we were like devoid of pretty much all physical contact we went back to something that was more intimate than like dming someone or yeah. even like video calling them it's fascinating you say that i didn't experience that here in the u.s i'd be curious if any of our other tell you what Tessa, listeners have experienced it thank you i would appreciate that I will say, though, that like it makes sense to me because I remember that one of the most exciting things that would happen during quarantine was like if a package arrived because it was like it was like an instant hit of dopamine to be like, oh, like, you know, there's something waiting for me on my front porch, you know, like contact, you know, with the outside world. So it makes sense to me that like a, a letter would kind of provide that same dopamine because yeah like you're not going to get the same rush from someone dming you as you are from like getting a letter so that that does make a lot of sense to me in the context of especially even in the context of this book as well i think it's also interesting that moist doesn't want to kill the clacks like his whole thing at the end is we can't we actually can't destroy the clacks because so many people rely on it um, the economy has become fused with instant information now. Like it would actually ruin a lot of people's lives if we got rid of it completely or if it shut down for an extended period of time. And he even says, like, when he comes back to the post office after the competition, after the race, he says, like, it's going to be weeks. I do want to talk about that later. Oh, yes, <laughs> for sure. But he says it's going to be weeks before we know, you know, if Lead Pipe Jim made it to Genua or not. And he said it's a little frustrating because even he had gotten used to instant updates to things like that. So for Moist, it isn't actually a case of the post office against the clacks as technology. Those two things can coexist. Yeah, like as business models or economic models. Yeah, because that is an important distinction I think you need to have, be it on this scale or on like a civil rights scale, if you're like doing that in your your book or whatever, like having them be sort of black and white binary opposites is fine and all. But then when you have that like interplay where, you know, Moist can't or like relies on instant information for things, despite being the champion slash God question mark of the post. <laughs> Which it becomes I do less wanna, and less I, I clear wanna... as we go along. <laughs> but, you know, like where you have then in stories and also in real life, you know, where people on the side of the oppressors are sympathetic to the cause of whoever is being oppressed. And that, like, helps the movement on. Obviously, it's not the sole thing, 
but like having that sort of link between them i think is is important uh, as a white amab male passing <laughs> he tells veterinary like no it shouldn't be run by the government like the post office is run by the government that's a government institution but this belongs to the deer hearts it belongs to the engineers that built it and the way that they built it was good right it, it was mm. it was these venture capitalists and these these corporate sharks that ran it into the ground and so that's really what he objects to it's not the technology itself uh, no yeah because like the villain in this comes down to like there's no other sort of motivation other than just like pure greed in a way that we like see reflected in the real world today you know it's not like in it's not like in the fifth elephant you know where it's like this is twinged with like you know representations in the fantasy world and like things with that this is just like something we actually see in real life and so reacher guilt is very much like like an Elon Musk or what's that man who's currently on trial? Um, Sam, Sam Bankman Reed, is it the, the, yeah, the, the crypto guy, like it's the, the exact same thing. And it's the system that he creates, you know, it's not like men at arms where a, a, a gun that like possesses you, you know like controls you mentally into killing people or anything this is just like unadulterated greed because i do think that reacher guilt is kind of the figurehead villain in this but he's not he is he is a villain because he's able to take advantage of a very specific economic system that allows him to and and his shareholders the board to take over the the Clax, the Sephamore company, to create a monopoly out of it, first of all, and to basically run it into the ground. And this book, I think, does a very good job of showing that at every single stage of this, they make money. Like, it's all about hmm. greed. And it's not just, you know, like, oh, well, when the business is doing well, it makes money. It's like, no, like, actually how capitalism works, these people have figured out how to make money off of something, even when it's dying, even when it's not working yeah. well. Because when when you like come to what if the what if the clax dies and it says oh they'll just buy it back cheaper under a different name, right? Exactly. You just build it back up again and then tear it down and yeah. So this is the first time I think that Pratchett has taken a direct aim at capitalism, and I think that's because you know or his earlier books were more based on a more like feudal or renaissance view of the world which in which capitalism wasn't really a thing not in the way that it is oh, now Oh god take me back to those days i would <laughs> gladly i would gladly suffer some medieval ailment if it meant i didn't have to deal with capitalism yeah capitalism pretty awful so this is really the first like direct way in which pratchett he's indirectly criticized it on a few occasions but this is like direct anti-corporation, anti-billionaire type of critique. But like genuinely, like I found, I don't know about you, like did you also find Reacher Guilt just sort of terrifying? Yes, absolutely. Because like, I mean, obviously like what he represents, he's that like predatory wolf. But like right. what really sold for me was like when Moist met him and realized like, the scale at which 
like like they do the same thing but the scale at which reacher operates is so much like vastly larger than anything moist ever does and that's terrifying and just that whole system then because it's like well he does that with with countries essentially you know yeah, it's it's fascinating to me. And the fact that Moist recognizes what he is, like, like he's a con man. He just does it on a bigger scale than what I do. And the idea, I love what he says when he says he even advertises it. His disguise is yeah. literally a pirate disguise. Like he he's actually telling them what he is. I love his parrot. Yeah, <laughs> the 12%. 12%, yeah. And then they go, oh, pieces of eight at the end. Yeah. So it's 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 fascinating to me. The other thing that really got me and like this is something I'll have to ask you about and I guess our other UK listeners because oh, I'm not I as love familiar these specific questions. Well, I'm not as familiar with the specific type of capitalism that is in the UK. I know it's I know bad. that it's also bad. I'm more yeah. familiar with the American version of it which Reacher says some things in this book that really sounded like things that I've heard before in defense of capitalism in the U.S. So, for an example, when Ventnari at the beginning meets with the board members of the Clax and with Reacher specifically, which let's acknowledge that Mr. Slant is here, which must mean that these people are up to no good. Yeah, although notably, he deserts them at the end. Like Yeah, he's learned how to jump shit now. Yeah, but... uh, Reacher says, yeah, okay, so Reach, this is kind of a longer um, section, but Reacher says, that, my lord, and with respect, is none of your business. Lord Ventnari smiled. For the first time that morning, it was a smile of genuine pleasure. Ah, Mr. Reacher Gilt, I was wondering when we'd hear from you. You have been so uncharacteristically silent. I read your recent article in the Times with great interest. You are passionate about freedom, I gather. You used the word tyranny three times and the word tyrant once. Don't patronize me, my lord, said Gilt. We own the trunk. It's our property. You understand that? Property is the foundation of freedom. Oh, customers complain about the service and the cost, but customers always complain about such things. We have no shortage of customers at whatever cost. Before the Cephamore, news from Genua took months to get here, and now it takes less than a day. It's affordable magic. We are answerable to our shareholders, my lord, not with respect to you. It is not your business. It is our business, and we will run it according to the market. I hope there are no tyrannies here. This is, with respect, a free city. That is so, like, textbook. Like, this is a free country. We can run our business however we want to. We shouldn't have government oversight. Like, if government oversight happens, there's no freedom. Then what he says is even worse, because then the the Vetinari says, but the only choice your customers have is between you and nothing. Um, because they have a monopoly. And then Reacher's guilt says, exactly. There's always a choice. They can ride a horse for a few thousand miles or they can wait patiently until we can send their message. That's literally like saying, if you don't like it, you should go somewhere else, which is something that has been said. And a lot of poor people can't actually choose the difference um, between those yeah. things. Because like, w- like a good example, like up until recently, the prices of insulin, which is like a life-saving medicine for people who need it, like the absolutely exorbitant cost of it. Oh, yeah. And it's like, well, what what else are you going to do if you can't afford it with like Medicare or something? Well, just die then, I guess. You know? Yeah, yeah um, exactly. And it literally took someone pretending to be them on Twitter when Elon Musk brought in his new ridiculous business model. Like, yeah. we have one ludicrous 
business model from someone who's spending far too much money on something like just just to divert briefly to elon musk like i I remember a news story recently where it's like he lost billions like billions with a b on something like his stock it was like the stock prices of tesla plummeted or something and still he was like the second richest man in the world you know which is like that's fucking crazy and he paid 44 billion for twitter but he's still rich yeah like that's yeah, the exactly. thing that i he's think this book rich. does such a good job of explaining is that these people don't they don't lose money like they they've literally rigged the game so they cannot lose money but what i do want to bring up there though is that like that parallel between Reacher Guilt and Veterinary is both of them offer people options, but they're like not really options because Reacher Guilt is like, yeah, you can you can ride a horse a few thousand miles, or you can wait for us patiently to send. You can patiently wait for us to send your message. So there's like no choice at all there. And Veterinary does the same to to Lipwig, and also then to to Guilt at the end where it's like. Oh, if you don't want to take this job offer, you can go out that you can just walk out the door. You know, like everyone needs to have like that most what is it they say that most elusive of all things hope or something like that? Yes. <laughs> which yeah. Is, which is hilarious. But like it is like it really does feel like both veterinary and moist are nearly meeting almost like an equal in terms of what they do, but just like on the opposite side. Right, the the darker version of it. Um, yeah. yeah, I also really liked um, because yeah, I, a lot of again, this kind of goes back to the UK versus US thing. Is this a, a rhetoric in the UK? This idea of freedom, no government oversight, because that would mean loss of freedom. Not as much because our like fundamental, I suppose, like constitutions, essentially, like our our bills of rights aren't necessarily as gung-ho for freedom of speech like obviously it's a thing but it's not as like clung to by people as in america when they cling to the first and second amendments like oh you can't take away our guns because that's taking away like a fundamental right of ours now obviously there is still things like that um recently i don't know if you saw uh like the uk has banned or, or like they were talking about banning uh people like flying palestinian flags in solidarity with people literally massacred in gaza because they're like oh you're supporting terrorists so they're like they're they want to curb that but like in ireland it's like especially notable in like smaller ways because ireland is literally a tax haven apple set up shop in ireland because of like tax loopholes and so they owed us literally 13 billion euro oh wow and then yes in in taxes that they hadn't paid and then this came due there like two years ago and the government had a big vote on it over whether we should force these tech companies to pay their taxes to us because yes we would get money but then we would lose their business and so the government voted not to make apple give us 13 billion despite the fact that we're struggling with like money in the country because they didn't want to lose that business and so we were just like it was just like to the poor people oh 
fuck it, you know, we're not going to use that to build affordable housing or improve public infrastructure, you know, connect more of the country by rail and make it easier to, like, get around or no, we're not going to do that. Or... Right, because the business of these companies matters more than 13 billion euro. Like that in and of itself, like I think yeah. it might have been worth it for 13 billion euro. Yeah, I mean, and you know that that's because the tech companies were lobbying your government. Oh, yeah, obviously. And then as well, recently there was, uh, I think it's Loch Nee. I'm pretty sure it's Loch Nee, which is up in Northern Ireland. But it's privately owned by some like multimillionaire slash billionaire. I'm not sure. I'm kind of hazy on the actual details of this. But essentially, what's happening is like like the lake supplies water through like reservoirs and stuff, like act, like just drinking water to people in the area. But it's become massively overgrown with algal blooms, so it's like people like it's unusable. And the guy who owns the lake wants to like charge people to essentially get it cleaned so they can have access to drinking water and it's like a re it's like a much much smaller scale of like what was happening with the water in flint michigan and stuff you know like where it's wow. like the water is yeah like the water is fucked but like the people in power don't want to do it they don't want to like give people a basic human right yeah and like i think there's a lot in this book about how these people always win. Like, even if Reacher doesn't win in the end because he chooses incorrectly with Vetinari, the bank yeah. that was responsible for all of these things, it still opens, right? Because all of these rich people come out of the woodwork to fix it because they'll always take care of each other more than they'll take care of, you know, the city. So, like, yeah, it, so it's, it's a real yeah. Pyrrhic victory. Yeah, it really is in some ways at the end. A big fucking downer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the only real victory is that the the trunk isn't in the hands of those people anymore. It's, you know, theoretically going to go back to the dear hearts eventually. But I will say there are two things. One, I really liked Miss Dear Hearts when, when she says that freedom that he keeps talking about. It's freedom for him to to prey on everyone else. It's not freedom for other people. That's because that's something that like is really fucked up that it's a thing in today's world. Like it comes from that whole thing of like, when you break a law, you know, like poor people go to jail and for rich people, it's a fine. But like the right. fact that people can like have specific freedom for themselves. And it's not like the overall fundamental freedom we should be entitled to just as like living beings. Right, exactly. It's freedom for some people and not for other people. Um, and, you know, Vimes is in this. He doesn't have a speaking role. He's just, you know, in this a couple of times in the background. He He's the one who prepares the re report for Ventnari at the beginning when he has that meeting. Because basically yeah. the Watch know that something illegal has happened, but they can't prove it um, because it's so, like wrapped up in money and embezzlement and it, it you know moist calls it a shell game basically what they've done but i like all the ways in which it is connected with crime and if vimes had if we had gotten vimes's perspective in this book i imagine that he would have used that phrase that he likes to use when talking about rich people versus poor people which is this is a big crime yeah and as we know he doesn't think that big crimes he keeps wanting to 
figure out how to hold these people accountable for big crimes. But the problem is, is that it's always like that's going to destroy the city or that's going to destabilize the economy or, you know, something always they always end up getting out of it in some way. Yeah, because like both Lord Rust and Dragon King of Arms, like the, the whole thing is, well, they're not really going to be punished. And so, like, that's kind of where we are with this, too, at the end of the book. The other thing that I definitely did not notice the first time, but that stuck out like a like a blinking light this time. Just remember, this was written in 2004. The uh, headquarters for the trunk, like the corporate headquarters, are in Tump Tower. Yeah. Did you notice that this time around? Yes. Well, this is my first time reading it. So I'm like, like, I'm reading this fully with the context of recent history. Like that hits different now. Like that that changes the meaning of this. Because two thousand and four, Donald Trump was this sort of like weirdly affable businessman before he had gotten into politics and fake tan and inciting rebellions. You know, he was this sort of like weirdly affable. Like, oh, we like him because he's fun. He's fun to poke fun at. Guy who had been in Home Alone too, art of the deal guy, and not like alt-right fomenter in america and so now like i don't know like now like it, it really feels like that it's sort of presaged some of that where it was like pratchett was nearly seeing down the road because as well he he died in 2015 which was like just before everything went to shit when trump was elected well i mean it was already already going to shit really that creates a parallel between Reacher, guilt, and Trump. And we know now that Trump really was a con man. He was a Reacher guilt. He is a Reacher guilt in a lot of ways because Hey, don't 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 take this don't take the don't take this down episode, but like God, I wish it God, I wish he was a was and not an is. He's now been indicted several times over for misrepresenting how much wealth he has and yeah. for doing really shady stuff with money. So, like, this is definitely he's he is a con man. He's one who did it with an entire country, basically. So, you know, I think that that I wonder what Pratchett thought of him back in 2004 if he thought he was a con man at the time. It's just it's wild to me that this that this particular metaphor, this particular reference works better now like horrifically better now than it did back in 2004 there has to be there has to have been some inkling and maybe it's just sort of the general collective unconscious when you're someone who's like aware of inequalities in society perceiving someone who has that much wealth or at least represent presents as having that much wealth that maybe there's that distrust because like even then like the, one of the most famous things he would have been known for at the time was like the art of the deal which now we know was like massively faked and like he didn't really write it and that kind of thing complete bullshit <laughs> yeah exactly like there's like this is, like it's a bad business all around but yeah you have to wonder how much of it like was uh, essentially like an open secret yeah I'm very curious. I mean, I was 14 in 2004. So like I I was 4 in 2004. Yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, this is not something that I would have been very aware of. I don't even think I knew who Trump was to be completely honest with you. God, I wish I could go back to that. 
but it, I, uh, I, I am curious though. Um, I would take a medieval illness over knowing who Donald <laughs> Trump is. Trump is. So I think that we've covered some of the big themes and we're going to keep returning to some of these just because they're so integrated into some of who these characters are. But I do want to talk about these characters because I think one of the other major great things about these books, one of the major strengths of this book is just how good these characters are, how just like well-defined they are as characters. So let's start with Moist, Moist von Lipwig. Lots of lots of alienis, uh, aliases. You've said uh, Albert Spangler is one of them. He's been a con man for most of his life. I like that we get a um, a very brief glimpse into his childhood um, from Mister Grile reporting to Reacher when he says, "Like, yeah, he like grew up in Uberwald. He like ran away from school because he was getting bullied, and that's all we really know about him." So we get like little like glimpses into his backstory. But for the most part, we get this book from his perspective um, as somebody who has been conning people for a very long time and who is being forced to act in ways that he would not normally act. Which is a, a nice like inversion on the fish out of water trope, which like yeah. I really hate when it's do- like fish out of water comedy. That's like I think the perfect example of this is like the first Thor film where he's just like. You know, where he's like in the pet shop and he's like trying to get something to ride or like throwing a coffee cup on the thing. I'm just like, I hate this. But it's like this one's like fight for your life. Deal with municipal uh, red tape. Uh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What did you think about uh, Veterinary's deal with Moist and this sort of emphasis that he puts on Moist getting an angel, Veterinary being that angel? I like that. Like... I like the thematics of that so much because like first of all you have to wonder how many times has veterinary done this before. <laughs> yeah, I know. Is this the first time or like the sixth time? I like the like thematics of it. Like the way he starts going on about like you're gonna get an angel. You know, you're gonna get an angel and that's gonna save you, and you only ever get one and that whole thing. And then like the fact that Moist spends like a solid three quarters of the book trying to like plot different ways that he could get out of this, you know, like when he's writing to, uh, when he's writing to Lanker and he's like, Oh, I could just like, Mr. Pump's not following me. I could totally disappear. Yeah. And all this, like he's, he's still like unwilling to believe. And then like, when you get to the end and he has that like moment where he envisions himself, like just desert leaving it all. And then it goes, that's essentially like, oh, it was all a dream. And you get that line, maybe sometimes you get two. And I I don't know why that was just like really affecting to me, because it's like, it's never too late to be given a second chance. I really like it. I like stories about difficult people who change. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they become not difficult, just that they change. And... That I, I really enjoy stories like that because I think it's really hard to change, especially when you're an adult and especially when you have all of these patterns that you rely on that usually are born of childhood trauma um, because we all have it. And I think that it's hard for him. It's hard for him to act in ways that will encourage permanent relationships that are based on like actual honesty 
as opposed to the way that he has lived his life before, because a lot of his life, he hasn't actually had to deal with who he is as Moist von Lipwig. He just puts on different personalities. Because you have that great moment where he's confronted with how many lives he's taken. And he's like, no, I've never, I've never killed anyone. Is it three and a half? It's like, oh yeah, it's like, yeah, there's like a weird like decimal amount to it. Yeah, Pump Pump says that. I'm trying to remember what he says. I worked it out. You have killed 2.338 people, said the golem calmly. I have never laid a finger on anyone in my life, Mr. Pump. I may be all the things you know I am, but I am not a killer. I have never so much as drawn a sword. No, you have not, but you have stolen, embezzled, defrauded, and swindled without discrimination, Mr. Lipvig. You have ruined businesses and destroyed jobs. When banks fail, it is seldom bankers who starve. Your actions have taken yeah. money from those who had little enough to begin with. In a myriad of small ways, you have hastened the deaths of many. That line, it is seldom bankers who starve. Harrowing. Well, and that kind of goes back into what we were saying earlier about how it's never really the rich people who uh, suffer for their crimes. It's always, you know, yeah. the people further down the chain. And then he has to confront that later on with the like very real fact that he's the one who like ruined Adora Bell's life when she was working in the bank. She let four bad checks go through and they were the checks that he had forged. I think that Moist is a very interesting character. I do also think it's interesting that Vetinari So Vetinari basically says all you have to do is be the postmaster and you can't leave town. That's all the instructions that Vetinari gives him. So Vetinari kind of just gives him his own discretion on how to reinvigorate the post office. It's really telling that like Vetinari knows that Moist will like will, will do good. Yeah. Overall by the end, like he's he's a really shrewd judge of character and it's like the same thing really that you see with him and Vimes where he sort of like he gives them essentially carte blanche. What does uh, Moist say at the end when he says uh, it's like being a puppet except for he makes you pull your own strings? I did like that conversation at the end where um, where, where Fadonari is like uh, like the narrative is like Moist knew the veterinary knew that he knew. Yeah. The veterinary knew. <laughs> and then he like he just like keeps stum and veterinary's like, very good. Moist methods of like reinvigorating the post office, like I I just like I like how it's treated almost ludicrous where he's like, uh maybe we should deliver the mail. And <laughs> <laughs> see what and, happens. <laughs> yeah. Like, is that not what the post is meant to do? And everyone in the post office is like, no, sir, no, no, no. Don't be silly. I think that Nari understands that Moist is actually, he can't help it. He, like, is a, he's a perfectionist, Moist is. He wants yeah. to do a good job. and He has to do a good job, I think, in everything he does. So it's almost like, even though he doesn't care as much about the post office at first, it's like he can't. He can't half-ass it, right? Like he, it's like yeah. Even even though he keeps telling himself, "I can quit anytime I want. This is just until I can figure out how to leave." He can't. If he could have literally just like moved paper around, but it's like he is fundamentally incapable of doing that. Yeah, and I think this comes back to like what we've discussed before, where 
occupation forms identity. Oh and, yeah, that's like, a big a sense thing of in this purpose. Book. Yeah, where it's like Moist is he's proud of what he does, regardless of the ethics of it. Like he does what he does well and he's proud of a job well done. And so like by his own nature he can't. Like like one like you have that sort of warring of the two halves inside of him there are two wolves where one is like cut and run <laughs> and the other one is like like especially when he starts to realize the scope of what he's dealing with with the clacks where he's like you gotta pull off a scam it's gotta be big and it's gotta be good and you see that then when he's like doing the when he he, he commissions the the people to make the stamps you know and he's like then then his brain is like fuck you can make loads of money on this you see the birth of stamp collecting in this book, which I recently just purchased a stamp collection on eBay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think that we should definitely talk about the stamp collecting, but I I like that you brought up the occupation thing because it is something we've talked about before, how Pratchett has these characters who their occupation is their identity, right? They have like created their whole identity and their whole lives around what they do. And I think we see that not only in Moist, but we see it both in the postmen, like Mr. Grote, Stanley, the other elderly postmen. But we also see it on the other side with the engineers, you know, like uh, the Deerheart family um, with Mr. Pony, with the people who made the clacks what it was, but were not savvy enough in business to stop it from being taken away from them. Can I, I have a brief diversion, um, just like when we're talking about that we've seen before. You remember how, like, it, when we were reading the Rinswim books, we were on about, like, his sense of being a wizard is tied very much to his hash. Uh, and because, like, it says wizard, because he's not very good at doing magic at all. So the only thing really right. that shows demonstrably he is a wizard is this hat. Uh, I was watching a clip of Neil Gaiman's eulogy for Terry Pratchett. Where he read the um, he read this he, his introduction to a slip of the keyboard, and then I, I I don't know have you seen this? I haven't seen it, but I have read the introduction to a slip of the keyboard. Oh yeah, so there's like a there's a there's a bit more uh, after it, and like it's really uh, affecting and whatever. And they're talking about like the different you know like you you've read it like where they're uh, late to the radio station and things like that, and just as he's leaving. I think it's Rob Wilkins. I'm not sure because I don't know what he looks like and I don't have the context around this to know if he was like the master of ceremonies. But he's like, oh, hold on just a second. Sir Terry left you this. And he hands Neil Gaiman his hat, the mm. the black hat. Yeah. And Neil was like, he left me his author hat. And he was saying like that um, Sir Terry used to like wear it. He's, you know, he he's, was like, I remember when Terry first said he was going to start wearing an author hat and so that he could do, you know, he could wear it when he was doing, when he was writing, whatever. And then when he could take it off, he would just be Terry Pratchett. You know, that like, I I just thought that was a neat parallel because I think we said before that like, there seems to be a lot of Sir Terry put into Rincewind. Yeah. But, but then it's really sad where Neil, Came and goes to put the hat on his head and he can't bring himself to do it. And he goes, no, I dare not really mm. softly. And oh my God. Yeah. That actually also fits really well with moist. Moist in, in his hat. <laughs> Cause he has, yeah, he has the postmaster. Look at us with all these links. And, 
Yeah, he has the hat, but then when he takes it off, when he wears the other suit, people don't notice him. Um, because the suit is sort of the the thing that people remember. I've never made that parallel before. Yeah, he's made his whole life with not being noticed. Like this bit here, Moise had always been very careful about that. He tried not to sneak either if he could avoid it being caught at 1 a.m. in a bank's deposit vault while wearing a black suit with lots of little pockets in it could be considered suspicious. So why do it? With careful planning, the right suit, the right papers, and above all, the right manner, you could walk into the place at midday and then the manager would hold the door open for you when you left. Palming rings and exploiting the cupidity of the rural stupid was just a way of keeping his hand in. It was the face. That was what it was. He had an honest face and he loved those people who looked him firmly in the eye to see his inner self because he had a whole set of inner selves, one for every occasion. Where it's like his whole thing is like he's he's no one. And this book really like confronts him with the fact that he needs to like actually be someone as opposed to being no one professionally. And not just that, he needs to be himself and he needs to decide who that is. Because he's being forced to work under his actual name, which he's never done before. What did you think about his whole thing about hope, which comes up a lot in this book? The idea that that hope is sort of, well, it doesn't usually happen, but it might happen. Well, because that's like something that like he's confronted with from the very start where he's like trying to escape the prison cell. And like they're told that like Veterinary always likes to leave people with at least the illusion of hope. And so then like he keeps going through it at every opportunity. He's given like some sense of hope, like when he's up on the gallows and he sees the black coach arriving and he thinks, oh, this is going to be a reprieve from Veterinary. But no, they're just saying I'll have to get on with it. So like at every stage, he's confronted with hope and then reality. But. I think like it's really shown when he uh, gets money from the gods, you know. Yeah. Where he has he has this whole thing, and he's like, like you can't get money from the gods. And then once he does, they're like, you've got all this like influx of um, people going to church and like donating to things and whatever because like that that's the um, the belief. They're like, well, it probably won't be you, but it might in the same way that like you play the lottery. I found I found one of the places where he talked about it. It couldn't happen. It shouldn't happen. But you never knew this time it might. Moist recognized that hope. It was how he'd made his living. You knew that the man running the Find the Lady game was going to win. You knew that people in distress didn't sell their diamond rings for a fraction of their value. You knew that life generally handed you the sticky end of the stick, and you knew that the gods didn't pick some everyday undeserving tit out of the population and hand them a fortune. Except for that, this time you might be wrong, right? It might just happen, yes? And this was known as that greatest of treasures, which is hope. It was a good way of getting poorer really very quickly and staying poor. It could be you, but it wouldn't be. Because, yeah, he said, like, he used hope sort of as a weapon against people. But it's like people can't help but hope, right? It's like the thing that gets them through. Because even he feels it when he's doing a job, even. He he runs on that adrenaline and that hope. Yeah, because rarely do we ever see him in this book, like, take a minute off and this is sort of like compounded then by the fact that like like with the newspapers 
they're 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 saying like he hasn't left the front page in days. Like he's constantly yeah. running. I loved when uh, Mr. Grote says, "Reach your guilt on the front page where you should be." <laughs> yeah, and then you have so this moment of. <laughs> Yeah, then you have this moment of like, oh, this is the morning edition. I have time to like draft a response. And it's very, <laughs> that's like so fucking old fashioned, you know, like back to, I'm thinking of like early American history, I guess, where, um, I mean, obviously this is a thing all across the, the way, but like when they used to publish letters in the newspapers under pseudonyms, like yeah. talking shit about a politician. And then that politician <laughs> would write one back in the next issue under another pseudonym. Yeah, absolutely. To that, it seems to be that Moist's natural state is running. And so like in the same way that like he has to, he ha he's forced to confront the fact that he needs to be someone he needs to like, th this book is, about him learning that like sometimes he has to run towards something as opposed to running away from something. And that's, that's kind of what he's realizing um, is that, yeah, he looks down on hope because he knows how it can be used against people, but actually he needs it just as much as they do. Like you said, to run towards something. So I think that that's, it's a really interesting double vision that he has here where he's like, okay, I can understand how hope can be used against people, but also I can understand how it's necessary for people to survive. Everything is a weapon in the right hands. Right, exactly. Let's talk about the postman. <laughs> so at the very beginning, Moist meets the two people who le are left working in the post office, Mr. Grote and Stanley, and Mr. Tittles, I should say, important member yes. of the team, Mr. Tittles. I have to say that that scene where they're explaining that Mr. Tittles is like 20 years old and like will literally just stand waiting for you to move out of the way <laughs> because he's so set in his, his routine. That was very funny to me. That's exactly owning a cat. <laughs> this is the cat's world. You just live in it. But like, what did you think about Mr. Grote and Stanley and sort of their living situation in the post office and what they're sort of doing to try to like keep the building together i fucking love stanley like just the most oh, the most artistic character i've ever read it's true not e not even like as a joke but like genuinely like this feels like like really good representation like here's here's a person who like experiences sensory overload and who has like hyper fixations on specific things like uh, and we don't want to we don't want to uh, get in the way of Stanley when he, he's in one of his moods. But like, damn, this isn't like a fantastic representation of, of someone with well, someone who's neurotypical. I, I don't want to like specify, I guess. But like, he was great. Yeah, Stanley is a very charming character in a lot of ways. And it's interesting that at the beginning, he has this fixation with pe with pins, right? Yeah. My favorite was like, don't even get me started on like people who say that needles are, you know, like, um, yeah, and the, the, the nail, the pin shop was hilarious to me. The way that he's like, uh, I'm looking for something a little bit, you know, you know, more than this. And the, the owner is like, we don't have nails in here. There are children who come in the shop. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like the, the pin people made me laugh, but then he kind of gets in on the ground floor of stamps. And becomes like the kind of the foremost stamp collector. What did you think about sort of that storyline for Stanley? That was great. I like. I mean, there's a lot of like 
I I was gonna say unintentional humor, but no, like it's fully intentional. Like like when he first sees the appeal of stamps, where he just like throws his pins away, and he's just like, like who even talks about pins anymore? You know? <laughs> yeah, no, because like as well, there's a lot of parallels with between Moist coming to the post office and like Carrot coming to the watch in Guards Guards for the first time, where it's like these very few stragglers left behind is something that used to be great and has now fallen into disrepair. And so you have nearly this like messianic figure coming in who like everyone will follow. And it it was really sweet seeing how enthusiastically swept up Stanley was following Moist. Like from the moment that Moist gave him the pins, you know, where he's like, oh, I just found this one lying around like i i also just love the description of of like how moist is able to like really quickly get a, a passing familiarity with any particular subject i just i i just thought that was really cool i loved that scene because stanley is not an important person in terms of like where he fits on the hierarchy of the post office and so yeah. it, it it's so like interesting to me that Moist feels this need to ingratiate himself with with Stanley or you know get Stanley to trust him and like him and I think I honestly think that it's because Moist does want that connection. He's afraid of it at the, at the first part of the book, but he does want it because again, he literally could have just like camped out in the post office and like just pretended to move stuff around. He did not need Mr. Grote or Stanley to like him. Well, I mean, know, in order to do this, he couldn't. He couldn't really because Mister Pump was there, and I'm sure he would have reported to Veterinary if right. But he still he didn't need to. As... He didn't need to go to this kind of effort. Yeah, but he does, and I. I think that that's really. It says something about Moist too that he's like, no, I want this person to like me because I actually do yeah. want to do something while I'm here. No, no, that, that's what I was about to say. Like, it feels nearly like he's like, I need to, like, make an impression. And so, like, he, he has a very clear way of doing it with Stanley, but then with Mr. Grote, it's like, like, from the very first minute when, uh, when Mr. Grote is like, no, 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 these are the particular ways that we do things, and Mr. Tiddles does this, and no, we don't deliver the post, and Moist is like, God, how do I fucking deal with this guy? Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Grote, very set in his way. Junior postman Grote at the uh, beginning of the book, how far does he get up? Is it is it deputy postmaster by the end? He gets to acting postmaster. Acting postmaster. That's right. And he gets to wear the hat, um, which unfortunately yeah. causes him to get attacked. He had been there in the post office since he was basically a child. Yeah, from a whole family of post people. Right. And that's that's true for a lot of the older postmen who come back as well. What did you think about Mr. Grote and the other postmen? Mr. Grote grew on me. Like, I definitely at the start found him very annoying. Yeah. But he definitely he definitely grew on me. And especially, like, from the moment that we sort of, like, see Moist's transformation into the god of the post. Yeah. You know, where he's like, oh, no, you are the one. You know, yeah. like, like in the Matrix, he's starting yeah. to believe. Which, I haven't seen the Matrix. Uh I like that the rest of the postmen are like, there is no prophecy. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. 
he's so recalcitrant at the start, but then the minute he gets something to change his worldview, he he instantly switches sides, like like so fast and so hard, it's nearly comical. Where he's like, "You are the one to save us." What did you think of the postman's walk hazing process? Terrifying, like yeah. genuinely, <laughs> because like like whatever you do with the other ones, like at the start, but then like the fucking the door. Yeah. The door that would just like cut your hand off. Yeah, it's hardcore. Yeah, it's like a saw trap. And then yeah. the the dog things with the the lip figures, lip vitzers is that yeah. But like Moist takes such a gamble on that because like it's revealed that like they're not purebred lip vitzers. He recognizes the bark and he so he thinks he knows what he's doing, but it turns out that his confidence got through. But it was a unfounded confidence that just happened yeah. to work, which I thought was was great. Yeah, I, I thought that that was interesting. What do we think about the post office as a building? Because I think that this as a setting is really interesting as well. The post office in this touches on one of my like very favorite real world things, which is dead letter offices. I love dead letter offices because like just the concept of like this is a place mail that no one receives goes to you know or it's like this is where all this like dialogue and requests and things like this go unanswered and then we see this like like the the concept of a dead letter office is is fascinating in real life but then especially when you turn it into fiction then you get like some really cool possibilities like there's loads of that in like audio fiction that I listen to. Probably the, the most standoutish one is the Dead Letter Office of Somewhere Ohio because it has Dead Letter Office in the title. But like when when they describe it as like a tomb of unspoken words and things like that, like it's so cool. And the, the like nearly sixth sense that Moist gets, like where he can sense their their voices rustling like like tiny paper sounds. And like then when he knows that the post office is on fire because he can hear them screaming. Terrifying. And the time shit. Yes. So we find out, or and Moist finds out, that actually the first the the two people who Vetinari tried to put in charge of the post office before him both died in mysterious ways. And it turns out it's because the piles and piles of letters which just like the idea of a building filled with like letters like that i think is like very visually intriguing to me as well i'd love to see that adapted yeah so these letters are basically like bending space time around them <laughs> and yeah. it's causing him to like have hallucinations of the past um but the building isn't the past and so it turns out that the two people before him one died of a heart attack and the from seeing this and the other one just stepped out into the air because okay. he didn't realize that the staircase didn't exist anymore it reminded me honestly of the shining quite a bit yeah because, actually yeah because there is like you know jack sees these visions of what the hotel used to look like um especially in the bar area where he sees all those people and the bartender you know and all that stuff I, I do want uh, I do want to voice the fact that I'm really mad that I never got a chance to go to the Stanley while I was in Colorado. Uh, oh, that was my yeah. one big regret. I really wanted to go, but 
there's something I think out of all of that is just so fascinating is that like he's perceiving the past but like he's not in it he's still like walking around in the present because you know, like it, it's very easy in these stories to like just step into the past and be exactly in that time but the fact that like we have this tactile reminder of like the decay of the post office where like the staircase isn't there anymore and like the big statue that moist sees of the post god person like that's not there and all this thing like we're constantly presented with like this decay essentially like it's nearly it's nearly like ozymandias really where like you go in and you just see the legs of stone and this pedestal that says what used to be there yeah i think it's it's visually very interesting and i do like the idea of the letters like whispering to themselves right because they want to be delivered um although the whole like deliver us thing is very it's very silly but i enjoyed it but yeah i also like that he goes to the university to talk to he doesn't talk to the librarian although the librarian is there we seem to get a lot of this like characters from previous books who were there just in appearance only like they'd be walk-on cameos if this was a show but he comes to talk to him about the post office and about like what happened i really liked the explanation because we already know about l space right um from the library and so this is kind of its own like post office version of l space is basically the explanation that's given to Moist, that all of these undelivered letters are, their purpose is to be delivered. And so they want to fulfill that purpose, but there's so many of them that they're basically bending space and time around them. But we, ha- we haven't even mentioned the like really bonkers, hilarious part of this whole thing, which is the sorting machine. Oh yeah, the fact that it's just like, like a portal to another dimension? Yeah, so they got a sorting machine. I think it was supposed to, what didn't they say it was supposed to be like a potato peeler originally or something like that? Uh, Our old friend, bloody stupid Johnson um, is once again, responsible for this. I love that. Anytime you have some kind of device that does something like insane, it's always bloody stupid Johnson. Like they could have just told me this sorting machine existed. And I probably would have guessed who made it before, (laughs) before they actually revealed who it was. But basically, it he made a machine. He was he was mad that pi isn't three because <laughs> it's like three and a bit, as uh, Moist points out. And so he made a machine in which pi is three, and that like yeah. fucks with space and time. And so like the wizards tell like basically theorize that what happens with the sorting machine is that it's pulling letters from different universes, like the multiverse. So like they would get letters, like some of them were like something that had been posted like 20 years ago or something that wasn't going to be posted for 20 years or something that might have been posted if something slightly different had occurred. So it's not even like they're putting in letters and those letters are being sorted. It's like they're putting in letters, the letters are being sorted, but then also extra letters are being put in there. And one, I want to know what you think of that as a concept. But two, does that mean that some of these letters that are like heaped up that Moist is trying to deliver are from other dimensions? I don't think they are, or at least the heaped up ones. I don't know. Like, it surely seems that like these are just the backlog from this reality, but they could be. I think that's a really interesting 
concept for like a machine and this is something that like we see increasingly in Discworld is that like now there's technologies and things that are harnessing the the power of quantum you know yeah, that quantum. they're leaning into this yeah and we have we have Ponder Stibbons speaking role in this yeah our all our old friends have speaking roles yeah emphasis on the old but like it's it's funny that like they never get ponder to talk about the sorting machine like it'd be interesting to hear what his take on it is like they talk to who's that guy i've forgotten the names of both the guy they speak to and, and the guy in the biscuit tin professor pelk is the guy who studied the post office who he speaks to first and professor goiter is the one who's the posthumous professor of morbid bibliobancy which is a great title yes i also love the just the the like Oh yeah, the retirement package, which is like like a little bit of death. You know? Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> he can come back anytime he wants. That's so appealing, genuinely. Not in a like suicidal ideation way, but I think we all have that bit where it's like. And now I'm thinking of like, uh, I'm thinking of like when Bo Burnham talks about like, like oh, if you could just like kill yourself, knowing that like you'd be dead for like a year and then you could come back. But obviously not that, but just you're like, we've all had that bit where it's like, ah, oh, if I was just like dead for a little bit, that would solve X problem. Um, Sorry, that got real dark. No, no, I it, it is absolutely what is happening here. I also I found it incredibly funny that the wizards were basically like, we can't turn the sorting machine off because reality might be completely destroyed if we do that. But then the postman who like runs in and hits it with the crowbar until it stops worrying. And they're like, what did you like? Why did you do that? Weren't you afraid? And he was like, well, either they were overemphasizing it or they had a different universe they could run to. Uh, like, or, and it, honestly it was getting on my nerves. <laughs> it feels very like telltale heart nearly, which actually yeah. I was reading. Have you, do you keep up with Mike Flanagan? I do not, but I ha I did see that he has Fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, so I promise this is related to Discworld. So okay. you haven't seen any of his like Netflix haunting shows, no? No, I have seen he's the one who did Doctor Sleep, right? Yes, fantastic yes. adaptation. Wonderful adaptation, yes. Like this is the achievement of achievements sold Stephen King on Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining. Which is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the first one he did was The Haunting of Hill House, which was pretty much like just an adaptation of the book. Like, granted, it was like very different because there's like a whole new cast of characters instead of like a bunch of people buying the house, like in the Shirley Jackson story. Yeah. Side note, did you know that there's now an official sequel to Haunting of Hill House? Is it the one that's based on Henry James? No, 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 no! Not the series. That's uh, that's the oh, the book. that's the next series he did. Yeah, there's a sequel to the book, which to, is licensed uh, for, by the sure. Shirley Jackson estate. Okay, I did not know that. But I was like, I was like, F I don't know how this is going to live up, and like, especially to the opening line of Hill House. And I read the opening line of this book, and instantly I was like, I need to buy this book. It's so oh, wow. good. Okay, I will put yeah. it on my list for sure. It's called The Haunting on the Hill by Elizabeth Hand. But then with the sequel series, The Haunting of Bly Manor, like it's taken loosely, like 
from the turn of the screw by Henry James, but like right. it also adapts bits and pieces of other bits of his work. And then with uh, not with Midnight Mass, because that was like an original thing he'd been working on for 10 years. But then with the Midnight Club, the framing device of that show is based off of the book of the same name by Christopher Pike. And then each of the like anthology stories is a different an adaptation of a different one of his books. And then we have the same thing with the house of fall of the house of Usher, where it's like on the surface, it's the story of the same name by Poe, but like there's adaptations inside of other bits. Like each of the episodes is the name of a different Poe story. And it like adapts that. And there's loads of like little references to other things by Poe throughout. It's really, really interesting, but I was reading an article this morning about like how this sets up like a new way of adapting things, you know, without being derivative, which is like this sort of amalgamation way of doing that. And then my question for you then, just when we were talking about that, is like, do you think that this would work for Discworld if it wasn't like a straight adaptation, but more like if you ever watched the show Castle Rock, which is sort of yeah. like that approach to Stephen King, but like doing that with with the world of Discworld. I think it might work if you took like, like we've talked before about how interesting it would be if it was like a show that kind of was more of an anthology of different like characters and different branches. My problem yeah. is always going to be, how do you work with the narration of the book? You know, do you do more of like a lemony snicket like that, yeah. that Netflix show? Because the problem with, I think with Pratchett is that that narrator is such an important character voice for his work that it's hard to it's hard to make an adaptation good um without the narrative quality um but i i could be convinced i i like would like to be convinced yeah like have a frame story that's original and then within then have like sort of looser adaptations of like things but not as loose let's say as the watch tv series yeah maybe not quite that loose um keep the characters i love the characters yeah uh briefly i did want to say one of the hugo novellas i read uh for this year that was nominated for best novella is um what moves the dead by t kingfisher um oh i love that also an adaptation of usher quite good made me terrified of fungus yeah have you read mexican gothic by silvio silvia morena garcia i haven't but i just read her um daughter of dr moreau which was quite good as well oh you would love mexican gothic it's also a terrifying fungus book like i did a, a recommends card for it in store for like the staff recommends wall and i started off my recommendation with this is the most disgusting book i've ever read yeah <laughs> Like, it is genuinely, like, icky. <laughs> All right, I will have to, I will have to read. It's on my list. Um, I All of her stuff is on my list. And we're, oh, we're joined by a very special guest, my dog, Jasper. Oh, <laughs> Jasper. Before we leave this particular topic, I did really want to point out a couple of things. One, I really love Moist's inversion of his hope principle at the end. When he's looking at Reacher Guilt reacting, like realizing that he has perhaps been conned by Moist, the idea of fear being the inversion of hope, like it can't possibly go wrong, but it might go wrong. I thought that was brilliant at the end, the way that they inverted that concept. 
Yeah, and this comes back to my love of like heist and like con men stories. Yeah, where like we get to see him like working out what he's gotta do to like really stick it to guilt, and then like him like working out how guilt is gonna react to that. Like, oh, it's so good. Oh, and I like how he makes him angry, so he'll make mistakes. Like he plays him yes. very well with the broom. I liked like when Coley pulling. Yeah, I love I loved Rid Coley pulling him to the side and being like, "You do know that painting stars and moons on a regular broom doesn't make it magic, right?" <laughs> I thought that that was yeah. uh, that was very funny. The other kind of minor villain that we get um, in this because Reacher is not a very active villain; like his villainy is more you know, like business and capitalism kind of villainy. We do get Mr. Gryle, who is not the first Banshee that we have encountered in the Discworld, but he is certainly the first feral Banshee that we have discovered. What did you think about Mr. Gryle and his uh, eventual demise? Banshee that we we met? Uh, He was in Reaper Man. I can't remember. The one that had the speech impediment who was sliding the screams under the doors. I don't remember his name. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Um, Part of Red Shoes Group. This was, like, genuinely, like, seemed really terrifying. Um, Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm kind of terrified of Banshees uh, normally. And like, I feel like that's just sort of like pagan roots in Ireland, you know, where it's like, this is a very real thing in our mythology. But just like, even when he's not going around being a banshee, like when guilt is ordering the post office be burned with moist inside, you know, where he's like, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, like waste any unnecessary words. Like he just does that, and he like understands. Like he's he's really like a cold blooded killer, like yeah. just so calculating. And then when he's actually feral in the thing, like like when Moist then encounters him when he runs back in, and he's like, "Don't turn around because you know it's going to be behind you." Yeah, just like loads of that. Like it, it felt like it was like actively leaning into horror and like horror tropes. Oh, yeah. Which is sort of a first for Discworld, I think. Well, Lords and Ladies had some of yeah. that in it. It, it. it pops up occasionally, but not as often as it might. I liked the character design of Mr. Gryle as well. I liked the idea that he looks like he's wearing a cape, like a leather cape, but it's actually his wings, um, which I thought was was very cool. Um, and I like design choice. Yeah, very good design choice. I liked also, first of all, I really like that Moist is actually from Uberwald as well because it allows him to know things about like these creatures because that's where they're from. Yeah. That that the other characters wouldn't necessarily know. I like his description of people forget, people know that Banshees scream before someone's about to die, but they forget that it came from the fact that originally it was because they were hunting you. Like it, like when they would scream, it meant that they had like they were on your trail. That was terrifying too. I thought actually, like the idea that like we've disassociated the meaning of the scream from what it actually was. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, which is which is markedly different from real life banshees. Well, right. Hopefully not real life. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like this isn't meant to be like an um actually correction. Like I think 
that change is nearly what makes it more terrifying because like banshees in folklore are just an omen just that like which is scary enough in and of itself like if you hear that you know you're fucked yeah um but then the added thing of like well it's coming for you yeah like it's actively a- the doom isn't just being foretold it is being actively pursued um. yeah exactly yeah, which I, that is very terrifying. I did like that the Banshee, who Reacher Guilt even says a vampire would have a problem defeating a Banshee, like um, Mr. Grile. A Banshee that powerful is <laughs> sent off limping by Stanley having one of his little moments with a bag of pins. Yeah. I thought that was like one of the funniest things that happened in this book. And also the fact that he gets distracted eating pigeons. Yeah, that also that. Yeah, he gets distracted by the pigeons. And he's like, I keep for, like the fact that he's like, oh, man, I feel awful. Like because the Ankh-Morpork pigeons are like, um, you know, they they'll eat anything. And so like it's like eating, you know, how like, you know, that like certain foods are going to make you feel bad, but you can't stop like yourself from eating. Me, when I order a milkshake from McDonald's, I'm knowing like this is gonna mess me up. <laughs> that was that was such a like f- fun character trait for a creature that is so terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it was like you want to hear something depressing. Do I? <laughs> I know. It's just it is, it's about pigeons. Like the way oh. we like look at them as pests now. Yeah, but like we bred them as a purpose, or we bred them oh, for yeah. a purpose to like do homing, a specific right? thing. Yeah, homing and sending messages and stuff like. Like, we made them that way, and then we just, like, let them go wild. And so now they're, like, they're viewed as, like, dirty and, and, and pests and stuff, which is just really sad. That is very sad. And, and like, there are other pigeons, like, the watch uses pigeons, too, mm. occasionally. So there are other pigeons in these books as well. Yeah, it's very much like, like seeing animals in, uh, like, a lot of cities, but, like, especially, yeah. like, the stories about New York, or, like, the pigeons and the rats in New York, and it's like, God, there's something else. <laughs> yeah, there's something else here. What did you think about Moist defeating the Banshee by throwing him onto the sorting machine? Just just remind me again, like, what actually happened to Mr. Grile, like, when he was thrown into the sorting machine? Like, was he just, like, like completely disassembled? by like the force of the multiverse is it or it's like his body was reassembled disassembled and reassembled by different his body exists in different areas of space time like he is very dead yeah that's like that goes so fucking hard (laughs) like and Moist, like, I, it even says, and I, re- I remember this because Vimes has a moment that's kind of like this in um, The Fifth Ele- Elephant, where he, you know, if he you was a hero, element, weren't you? yeah, I was, you know, if he was a hero, he would have said something like, well, that's sorted, you know, that's sorted him, which is very Bond-like, you know, like, to, to say the pun. Oh, yeah, very much early Bond being like, like, when he's asked, where are those three people going in uh, Doctor Now? And he's like, oh, they're on their way to a funeral. <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, but instead Moist throws up, which felt very, um, that felt very real to me. <laughs> like, you know, it also felt very real that he he has to, like, pry Mr. Tittles out from underneath the 
the sorting machine to rescue him from the fire because as someone who has chased a cat around yelling, do you want to die at them? I completely understand that particular emotion (laughs) because cats do not always, they panic and they don't always panic productively. (laughs) I mean, who does panic productively? I know it's just, but they get mean about it. I want to speak to them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. There's a few other uh, characters and concepts. I do want to go over. Um, We cannot, we cannot stop the conversation about this book without talking about Mr. Pump and the golems. I think that this book develops them more than any book we've read since Feet of Clay as as a species, right? Because they're kind of starting to come more into their own now that there are more free golems. Uh, the fact that there's like a, a place you can rent their services then. Yeah, and they're they're saving up to buy the other golems out as well. That was such a fascinating detail. I really like that, like, as a whole, but then, especially when it gets into the minutiae of, like, what it actually implies when you have a golem. You know, like, the fact that they are uh, n- not required, but, like, they they are entitled to one day off out of every every week like that's just for them they're not obliged to do whatever they're hired for and that's something you have to respect for them as golems you know to remind themselves that they're not just a hammer is how yeah exactly yeah and especially because like i mean they obviously have their own names and stuff and you have like you know like obviously angamarand i hope i'm saying that correct i think i think it's i think it's it's on on hamarad on Hamarad or something. But you have you have that, but like most of the time they're just described by their function. You know, Mr. Pump from Pump 17 or, or 19 or whatever it was. Which, by the way, horrifying when he tells uh, Moist about that, how he was basically buried alive for a thousand years, 9,000 years. Yeah, and so like you have this this reckoning between the fact that they're these like unflaggable workers and the fact that they're also sentient creatures. And, but it's also like, I don't know. It's like freaky. Isn't the right word, but you know, when they like change the words in Mr. Pump's head, when he's he's finally released from being moist's angel and he goes after Reacher guilt, like just the, like, just the idea of that where they physically like take it out of their head and change the words and put it back in sort of terrifying. Well, we've compared them to androids before and it's kind of like reprogramming an Android, right? Yeah. And we even get moist trying to reason with Mr. Pump using what's essentially Asimov's laws of robotics. Yeah, that's right. The first rule of golems is, is you must do no harm. Uh, except you have the inversion of one of the one of Asimov's laws, right? Where it's like, well, it can't happen if you're carrying out a directive from whatever it is. Whereas yeah. the the Asimov law is like, you can't harm, you can't like undertake an action which may indirectly lead to the harm of humans, as well as you can't directly harm them or something, right? 
Lozzie is probably the best person to ask about this. Yeah, Lozzie's been doing his podcast on Asimov, which has been great. The The first law is you cannot harm humans or indirectly through inaction ca- allow humans to be harmed. The second law is you have to obey orders from... You have to obey human orders unless it contradicts the first law. Yeah. So this is like What's a switch. What's the, the zeroth law? There's another one that they like brought in afterwards but then they like made it zero so it like supersedes all of the all of the first three that we got given it's like a um it's a global view of the first law so a a robot may not harm humanity or by inaction allow humanity to come to harm so looking at humanity as a whole um because basically by the end of the first book the robots have decided that they can interpret the first law as um well, humans are actually the biggest threat to themselves. So in order to protect them, we have to start managing their affairs, basically. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a really interesting. It's not like the movie. It's not violent, uh, at least not in the first book. But it, it's, it, it is an interesting. They're, they're fascinating books. I would, I would definitely recommend Is this the, the Foundation books? No, these are iRobot, the robot series. Foundation is his other. Ah, okay. The other one. I, we also get introduced to a new golem view of the universe, epistemology, um, that they believe that the universe is donut-shaped. The universe will come around again. And this is brought into perspective um, by Ang Hamrad, who has a message that he did not get to deliver um, to the king of Thut before it slid into the sea. So he's carrying it around with him. And Miss Deerheart explains that he believes that he might be able to do it differently next time. That's really heartening. And I think it's the same thing as Moist realizing that maybe you get a second angel, except human epistemology is limited by the knowledge that like you'll die. So like if the universe continues on afterwards, you'll be reborn. So like there's a difference there, whereas golems, like unless they're destroyed, they'll keep on living. Right. Um, so it's th- hard it, to destroy them. Yeah. So, like, very well, there. Like these two things might very well both be true. Like reincarnation might happen, except with golems, it's just sort of continuance. But like, it's really heartening to like have this this idea that Anhamrad is working towards that he's uh he's convinced the next time he'll do it right. Like you'll always have another chance to walk off stage and come back on again. It's like reincarnation, except for a more eternal view of it. Like this will happen again. Uh, It's very Peter Pan. This has all happened before and this will all happen again. Is that in Peter Pan? Yeah. It's the first line of Peter Pan. Oh yeah. Great. First line. Definitely top tier. First line for me. I will say though, and this is this is my one critique of this book, and I do not understand why it's in here. And I was hoping maybe you could shed light on it. For is me. it the is it the gender thing with the golem? Yes, yes, yeah. That Miss, feels so weird. Miss Maca Lariat, who? So I think she's supposed to be a like very. And you'll have to, you and Lazi and my our other UK listeners will have to like help me with this. I think she's supposed to be a um, like an archetype <laughs> of um, a specific type of like school teacher or matriarchal figure. 
Yeah. You know, uh, you're again, this is not, we don't have this necessarily. Um, we have our own on your side of the, you have your yeah. own series of people who are very fixated on people's genders for yeah. no reason. And like, I thought that she as a character was funny except for her fixation on gender and the restroom. And I think that I like making the, the golem wear an apron. Yeah. And like changing its name to Gladys. Yeah. And the same thing comes up again with the dwarves um, because you, can, you they don't tell you what gender they are. I can't decide if this is because he does so well with most trans issues. I can't decide if this is him making fun of it because it is really ridiculous in the face of the golems like making the golem like is he trying to say this is so silly that like like literally change still apply it to sexless beings like it literally does not matter to any of these golems what gender is it's not a thing is it is it also like highlighting that we're forcing people to accept gender roles in order to use like the restroom. Like I couldn't tell if this was him making fun of it, but I really didn't like that moist capitulates to her. And I, you know, I know that the, the restroom wars were not like as maybe as public as they are now back in 2004, but this just felt, this did, this didn't feel good to me. And I'm not, again, I'm not sure that it's entirely meant to be, um, straightforward i think that maybe he is trying to highlight how ridiculous this kind of attitude is but it's still it just felt icky because i really i really just wanted him to be especially with the dwarves i just really wanted him to be like no they can use whatever damn bathroom they want like it does not hurt anyone yeah i think like authorially that would work but with moist I don't know. Yeah, because I'm like coming up against like Moist is a people pleaser. So he's going to do something that's going to keep Mrs. McElariot on side because he needs her. Yeah. But at the same time, he starts to show backbone in other areas. Oh, no. Like this is very much like older people I've met here. You know, like they're so fixated on that. And like even before the uh, the concept of trans rights became like a worldwide issue where like even in the UK like pundits like Pierce Morgan would be weighing in on it like even before then they'd be like leery about it right because like you say she is like an archetype of this type of person in the same way that like especially in the older books wizards were like the archetypical sexless like British upper class you know like they they, they would never even consider having sex yeah, I don't know. I'd like to believe it's a lampoon, but I don't I don't have enough evidence to back that up. It really felt to me like you know like how sometimes people are like, "Oh, well, my grandfather's racist, but he's so old, he's not going to change his mind." So we just sort of like accept it because he's going to die soon anyway. You know, that's kind of what it felt like to me. And it just yeah. really like like just letting them kind of get away with it to keep the peace. I think you're right though about Moist that he's a people pleaser. Maybe by the time that the post office is rebuilt, he kind of like doesn't let her do that. I I don't know. Like cuz yeah, I agree with you. I I think maybe it's charitably I I am going to read this as a lampoon especially because he does so like he clearly understands how this works from like his other characters. But it did feel awfully close to that. Yeah, if this came before 
the introduction of Cherry, you'd be like, okay, he's still not moved on from the sort of equal rights view of gender he had and how it's not right. a binary. But the fact that it's come after this and after the fifth elephant and after all this other like representation that he's done, you'd have to believe that it's not like a regression, you know? Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't think it's a regression just based on what I know from future books as well. I mean, even after Monstrous Regiment, which had yeah. you know, characters that were very transcoded. And we decided Captain Jack Rum, Jack Rum. Is Jack like Rump, explicitly yeah. trans. I was about to like. I was like jackknife. No, jackboot. No. And I can't imagine that those characters would put up with any bullshit about what restroom they were going to go in, right? So I, it's just hard for me to know exactly what this character is or what they're doing. So yeah, maybe it is because Moist is the way he is. It just doesn't come off right. Yeah, and especially because, well, I think as well, like now that I'm considering it more. I think like a lot of his a lot of like his plan for reinvigorating the post office relies on the fact that he can get all of these old people there. So like he has to appease the like council of postmen by right. doing the postman's walk and stuff like that. But again, yeah. Kind of wish this joke didn't exist. Um This is you know, definitely something that I feel like would be cut if you were making this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like there are other ways to lampoon this archetype um, rather than bringing bringing the restrooms into it. Oh, I was just going to say, I went to go see Janelle Monet um, at um, no, in, in Philadelphia so a couple weeks ago. It was great. They're at the Met in Philadelphia. Their bathrooms are gender neutral and nobody cared. So, you know, it's not. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, there's it's it's nice when you see like gender neutral bathrooms. Like, I mean, in work, it's like easier to do, you know, in certain places to have like yeah. office bathrooms that are gender neutral. But in public spaces, it's much more like that's where the threat of people. When I say the threat of people, I don't mean trans people. I mean like the the threat of people being like, oh no, you're gonna have someone sneaking into the wrong bathroom, and it's always, it's always transfem people and not yeah. trans mask people they never they like it's like they don't know trans mask like, people exist yeah exactly guys are never like oh there's women sneaking into the men's bathroom to peek on them and it's like it, it really like it really just goes back to like how a lot of transphobia is rooted in misogyny um, yeah oh yeah i was i realized what i was gonna say but you do also have like fun gender neutral bathrooms that are out in public like ronald reagan and margaret thatcher's graves yeah <laughs> okay that was really good i that was great oh my god that's so funny i've yeah i've now got a reputation in work as being someone who just fucking hates margaret thatcher yeah the last character I want to talk about before I talk about some of the other Easter eggs that are in this is, of course, Miss Deerheart. Miss Adorabelle Deerheart. I hate I, that name. I, I hate I that she she's called... I think she hates that name. <laughs> please don't make me take those names seriously. So I was really glad when they like gave her a nickname. <laughs> A.K.A. Killer, A.K.A. Spike. Um, I do like that he calls her Spike. What did you think about this character? I have a complicated like 
relationship with liking her in the same way that like in the same way when we are reading the truth where it's like she feels partly independent but also partly in that weird like captured princess prize to be won territory like she's got a certain degree of agency but moist like is dogged in his pursuit of her and they don't feel like they don't feel really suited to one another. And then all of a sudden she just sort of capitulates to his advances because he's got like gumption, you know? Yeah. So like, I didn't like that aspect of it. And that's not just my normal hatred of romances. I was just like, this doesn't feel fleshed out in any way. So I, I actually really like her and I liked her more this time around than I did the first couple of times that I read this, because I've read this book more than once. Before, I definitely thought of her as like a very kind of like Saccharissa. Like she's kind of a like a cookie cutter. Like we need a romantic interest. Here is a romantic interest. Although I do like all the stuff about her family. But I realized this time through what Pratchett's doing and it's because I have a better film knowledge of um, now than I did when I was a teenager. Okay, so maybe if I actually watched something, maybe I would have a different <laughs> view of uh, Miss Gearheart. Do you know who Lauren Bacall is? Take a guess. Take a wild guess. I'm going to send you uh, a clip of her. She's wonderfully amazing. She was an actor who married Humphrey Bogart and was in a lot of films with him. Okay, I know who Humphrey Bogart is. I've never seen a single thing he was in. I've heard of him. Hold on, let me I'm gonna send you a like gif or something of her because you just have to know what she looks like in order to understand. And of course I have to find it one of her smoking because that's the whole point. Oh yeah, because yeah, because like kissing her is like kissing an ashtray. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So here's the thing. I was like trying to figure out I was like she's chain smoking like an old Hollywood like movie star. And then she said the line near the end, you know how to pray, don't you? You just put your hands together. That is a line that Lauren Bacall's character says and to have and have not. It's a very famous line. Um she says it to Humphrey Bogart's character and it's like you know how to whistle, don't you? You just put your lips together and blow is what she says. And she says it in a very like sultry, like sort of way. So that's what this, this actor looks like. Um, oh and she's, my God. She's so hot. She is. She's, oh she is my, so hot. Why did you show me that? And she has a very, Tessa, um, <laughs> I can't have more crushes on dead people. <laughs> you need to watch like, some of her I movies. Saw, I saw a photo of the actress Lillian Gish in a reference book and i've had a crush on her ever since like she was in films in like the 30s i can't like don't do this to me she also has an amazing voice it's very like unusually deep um and throaty um and so like in the like mid-atlantic accent thing that they used to do in the films yeah um so you should definitely watch some of the stuff with and her and bogart have amazing chemistry but so when i realized when she said that i was like Miss Dearheart is Lauren Bacall. That is who this is. And I think that it works for me, not only because I love Lauren Bacall, but because I think what's happening is not that, and it's not that Moist is Humphrey Bogart. He's not. But it, it's a, 
it's the thing where a con man or someone who is disreputable meets someone that he falls in love with, and that changes his behavior. Like, it allows him something to run to. And so I think that's what's being evoked here with the use of Lauren Eugene Ryder entangled. Yes, exactly. It's very similar. Now you're speaking my language. Yeah, it's like that. It's like the music man. It's, What's it's, up? Um, it's also a movie about a con man who comes into a town to sell the town. He sells like band equipment to the town, like trying to okay. like the music man. It's 1962. He comes into town. He sells them like band equipment and means to like just like run off with their money. But then he ends up falling in love with the librarian and also becoming really invested in the town. So it's very much like going postal in that way. That feels um, like, um, do you ever, did you watch the TV show, What We Do in the Shadows? Yes. You know that episode where Laszlo just fucks off uh, because the, the guy is after him? I, I can't remember what his name is. But then he ends up becoming really, really invested in the local basket, or the local volleyball team. Yeah, exactly. Where and he's so, like, um, Jackie Daytona, human bartender. <laughs> yeah, so my one problem with Miss Dearheart is that we never get any interiority with her. There's no way to know what she's thinking or what she's feeling, really, at any t- given moment because we never get anything from her perspective, which I think makes her, like you said, it makes her more um, of an object than it does a subject. But I do yeah. actually like the reference that is being made by her as a character. Um, so I have complicated feelings. I like them together more than I like um, Sakharissa and William. I think that they work a little bit better together because they kind of have that push and pull, right? They're not going to let anyone, either one of them get away with bullshit, Yeah, which I, I appreciate. But like you said, it does ma- she does come across more objectified than subjective. Yeah, and it's also interesting with to to touch then on when you talk about the little, like Easter eggs, like Sakharissa is also in this book. Yeah, she is. Um, and Otto. Surprisingly not William. Surprisingly not William, although Reacher does say at one point, I sometimes I think that the editor of the Times regrets that he only has one front page, <laughs> which I thought was yeah. very funny. Because yeah, I, I think that William does kind of regret that he only has the one front page. But Sakharissa is wearing a wedding ring. So clearly they got married or she got married to someone else. That'd be really funny if it was like, like, I, I think that will be nearly like more funny. What if she was if married was to Otto? Like, yeah. Or just anyone like she realized like, this is, this is not going to work. Like, why did I get into this relationship? And then she's found someone who's like better for her. That would be, uh, that would be so funny. It, it, it takes Moist a while to learn how to um, manipulate her. At first, he's like, she just wrote down what I said and published it, <laughs> which um, yeah. I thought same, was very funny. It, and it's the same reaction that, like, Veninari and Vimes have, where, like, that's that's dangerous. But some of the other is Easter eggs. Um, I really enjoyed Moist being like, well, no wonder they caught up with me. They have a werewolf in the watch. And he's like, you should really warn people about that. And Grote says, what are we supposed to say? Put it on a sign. Welcome to Morpork. We have a werewolf in the watch. Which I thought was very funny. And he actually does see Angua, although he only sees her in her wolf form. Yeah. After the fire. And he meets Carrot. Carrot's the one who questions him. So that's just kind of fun to see Carrot and Angua working together. Yeah. It, it's also fun to to see like a real outsider's perspective on Carrot. 
Yeah. Because for the most part, we only ever see Carrot when he's like a POV character in watch books. Like with Vimes, we have more books where he just like appears and he's just yeah. there, you know, doing things. Not necessarily as like an integral part. But it, like this is the first time really where we have a, have Carrot as like like a walk on character. Yeah. But it's interesting like how the narrative frames Carrot for someone who doesn't know Carrot implicitly. He's just sort of yeah. aware of him as like he's a watchman. And he doesn't interact with him enough to kind of get that charisma that Carrot has. It just would be interesting to see like a prolonged interaction between them because both of them rely on their charisma in a different in different ways because with yeah. Carrot it's like unintentional that people follow him because of like his aura because he's the rightful king of Angmore Pork and whatsoever. Whereas like Moist uses his like as a weapon actively to get people to trust him. I wonder if Carrot's charisma would work on him. Actually, I think it would in the same way that like he comes around to veterinary. Yeah, I guess I could see that too. Vimes uh, made a promise to Dr. Lon at the end of Nightwatch to give him his own hospital. We actually get to see Dr. Lon in his own hospital, uh, the Lady Sybil Free Hospital. So it's even named after Sybil. Yeah, where there's a slight chance that people will get better there. Yeah, some people come out. <laughs> I like that. I was like, I've, I had to go back and check Nightwatch because at first I was like, shit, is that the guy from Nightwatch? And I was like, oh, it is. That's so cool. But also the fact that like we're at this stage in the history of Discworld and Ankh-Morpork and like healthcare is still that bad, that it makes me wonder why we never got a book about like improving like, like like from a doctor's perspective Ooh. you know some sort of like medical like that would have been so cool read a book had to, like, from the pov of dr lawn absolutely yeah we're yeah and I'm, I'm thinking now like for like a hypothetical like industrial revolutions sequel book or something where it's like tasked with like improving medicare for uh, for for citizens because like we've got this technology that starts to like evolve you know with like the sorting engine and the uh the cameras that they use and the clacks and stuff so you could really like i think it'd be easy to like translate those improvements into like medical technology where it's like oh we've developed a, a rudimentary like mri machine let's say where you have a bunch of imps in it that can see through you and then they draw what they see. Yeah, because the Discworld technology always evolves slightly differently. Like, it's slightly more magical. Because even, like, um, when we see Ponder Stibbons, when he's doing this trick for um, Rid Coley to be able to play uh, pool or billiards, I guess, on the table with all the Oh, yeah, using phase space, which is a weird, like, variation of L space. Yeah, um, but then he also calls it, instead of algorithms, he calls it thob- thogmarisms. So like thomic, um, which is like yeah. a magical term that they use. So I, I think it's always very interesting when it's like, it is the technology we have, but it's like slightly different. It's slightly more magical. We also have a scene that occurs in the Mended Drum, which we haven't seen in a while. I did want to bring this yeah. up because... One of the first places we ever saw in the Discworld was the Broken Drum, right? In uh, The Color of Magic. It's where Rinswin yeah. meets Two Flower. And yeah, where it uh, it burns down. It burns down, yeah. 
And then literally the next time we see it, right, is when it becomes the mended drum. But when we first saw it, and really in the first few books that it existed, it was a place for heroes to meet or to hang out. And there was always like these bar fights. What do you think about it now kind of becoming almost more of a tourist attraction where like the fights are definitely staged? Not They're not fake. That's, they're just staged. That's so like, honestly, that's the most realistic thing, I think, about like. Uh, since Two Flower invented tourism, I think that's the most <laughs> realistic thing that would happen in a fantasy setting, where you'd have the like commodification of this like thing. Because now, when you're saying that, because I I've become more like immersed in D and D, and I'm trying to like start playing D and D, like the broken drum really felt like the uh the stereotypical. We begin in a tavern, right? Thing, yeah, you know? very very much so. And now, like the fact that this is like uh, like a Hollywood Walk of Fame type attraction, now it feels so true. And I also now I'm like, I'd like a Discworld book that's like dealing with the tourism industry. Yeah, like, there's so many parts of there's so many parts of Discworld where it's like if you if you even think for a moment after having read like some of the back catalog, you're like. Terry Pratchett could have done so many cool, interesting things with these. Like, you know, you could spin a whole book out of it. Because if you wrote a normal book set in the real world that was about the tourism industry or, like, improving Medicare, it would be a very, like, limited appeal. Yeah. You know, like, you wouldn't have that as the focus of it. But when it's in a fantasy setting, who boy. Yeah, I think, I think the Mended Drum becoming that way was interesting. And I loved the planning session for the fight at the beginning. Like, you know, it's yeah. two points if you do this or it's, you know, make sure you do this. I enjoyed that. It kind of yeah. reminded me also of pro wrestling, you know, like I was where just they'll... about to say it's like yeah. WWE. Yeah, exactly. Which I, I really appreciated. Yeah, this comes hot on the heels of uh, just the one piece of wrestling news. I know recently Sting announces retirement from uh, <laughs> AEW. When Moist goes to Stolot on the horse, that is crazy. Boris. Yeah, it's also the first time we've seen Stolat in, like, fucking 30 books. I know. Um, and the mayor of Stolat, um, when he's talking to Moist, um, asks if the post office could print Stolat version of the stamp. And he says, we have a queen. She's quite a nice girl. He's talking about Kelly. Yeah. Who we haven't talked about since Mort. Yeah. Like, this is, like, the first time we've really talked about Stola or Kelly has gotten a mention. So that's a... Yeah. Yeah, because this is the, the 33rd book, and Mort was the fourth, so literally, like, 30 books. That I feel like both the Mended Drum reference and this reference are kind of taking us back. Yeah, and I think that, like, might be intentional, just, like, the fact that this is, well, both Industrial Revolutions and, like, the whole thing is, like, we're reviving something old... Like the fact that like now we're seeing like essentially like look how far we've come. It's very much showing us how much the disc world has changed. I yeah. think since the beginning, it's a very Donk Morpork is a very different place. I mean, even at one point in the books, Moist says, you know, they did say that the streets are a lot safer now than they used to be. Um, that the watch and the guilds between them have actually made it a lot safer in some areas. Yeah, I think if we went back now and reread like an earlier book 
that was like set in Angkor pork, like we would really be stunned by the the difference. Yeah, absolutely. There are Igors. There are more Igors in this book than I think we've seen in a while because Reacher Gilt has an Igor um, who follows the rules of Igors, right? Like when you're when your master starts talking about how great he is, it's time to go um, before the mob gets here. But then um, we also like the Lady Sybil Free Hospital employs Igors. You know, we we see a lot more Igors. Like the the horse, the horse stable. They talk about how they employ an Igor. So, like, really, it's a it's interesting that Igors seem to be migrating to Ankh-Morpork. Yeah, I mean, ever since the one went back with Vimes, I think this is like they're like, oh, this is like a, a land of fresh opportunity. I did also like the last one that I wanted to talk about um, was the sign on the post office. The neither rain nor snow nor glom of knit can stay these messengers about their duty. And then the, the list of things afterwards don't ask us about rocks, trolls with sticks, all sorts of dragons, Mrs. Cake, huge green things with teeth, any kind of black dogs with orange eyebrows, reins of spaniels, fog, Mrs. Cake. So we get another reference to someone we haven't seen for a while, Mrs. Cake. Obviously, they're terrified of her, um, which why wouldn't she be? Um, but I also enjoyed that um, Ang Hamarad, uh, his group of messengers also had their version of Mrs. Cake, the goddess Sizzle. Yeah. I I enjoyed that a lot. There is a there is another little um there is another Easter egg, which is that um Veninari is playing essentially chess by mail with Margolotta. Yes, Thud. It's actually not chess. It's a different sort of game, but it's a um, Well, yeah, essentially a, chess by mail. It's a um well, we'll get to that. We'll get to what Thud is. It's it's sort of a teaser almost, which I think is interesting. Um, we don't get yeah, many of those. Yeah, that's, because that's the next book we're reading, right? Yeah, it absolutely is. So Thud is going to be very important in the next book. So it is kind of a teaser to what we're going to yeah. get to. And we also get a um, what's essentially like a post credit scene here where... Uh, guilt is finally dragged before veterinary and because i know the next one in this uh, in the moist lipwig moist von lipwig trilogy is making money i was like oh is the protagonist of making money not moist von lipwig like like is this just then the same thing but with reacher guilt but no he dies uh <laughs> so yeah i mean we're gonna that is the kind of a teaser. Yeah, we, next time we see Moist, it is going to be about the the Royal Mint, the Ankh-Morpork Park currency. I guess is what what we're going to be talking about. It. Although I did like the the idea that stamps have kind of become a currency all on their own, because um, that that is yeah. basically what he's doing. Is uh, this is basically a penny, right? Um, I really enjoyed that. Just it was so sad when Mister Pump was saying goodbye to Moist, where oh, he's yeah. like. If I knew what a pleasure was, I'm sure it would have been one to work with you. Yeah. Oh, my heart. It was so good. And I like that Mr. Pump and the other golems ship uh, Miss Deerheart and Moist. Like, they want them to be happy, which I think yeah. is... That's very... That's amazing. There's one death sighting in this book. It happens most of the way through the book, but death comes for Ang Hamarad when Ang Hamarad basically explodes in the fire because he's his clay is basically super hot and then cold water gets dumped on it, so it shatters. Yeah. Honestly, the most affecting death scene we've had in a long time. 
because death has to kind of explain to Anghamarad that he is dead. What death is, yeah. Yeah, and then he he asks death, like, what is the command? What is it? Do you have a command for me? And death has to explain, like, there are no more orders. And I just that scene at the end where he sits down in the desert, right? It doesn't even say it is the desert. It's just that he sits down on sand. And he says, like, I will stay here, please. And Death says, here, there's nothing to do here, said Death. Yes, I know, said the ghost of the golem. It is perfect. I am free. And that is just, like, the yeah. most, like, heart-rending exchange we've seen in a while between Death and another character. Yeah, and I think as well, it's because, like, there's this, like, really cool inversion where all the, like, living creatures who have lived their whole life with this knowledge that death is coming once they get there there's they spend their whole thing like trying to cross the sands like they nearly have words in their head where the command that they're following is to cross this thing that there has to be something in beyond mm -hmm. but then for golems who spend their whole lives living by words that are put inside their head the fact that there's no commands and that death isn't an arbiter it's just him the, like yeah. just that inversion is really just oh it tugs on the old heartstrings yeah i, 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 I think got a little choked last up time, yeah i think the last time i felt like this was um i don't know maybe the the fifth elephant i'm trying to think yeah. when the last like really affecting death scene was i mean obviously um men at arms with uh is it, it Cuddy the dwarf? That was so sad. Yeah. It it's just it was just very um it's a very well written scene. It also contrasts a lot with Reacher Guilt's idea of freedom because Reacher's idea of freedom is I have freedom to do what I want, and if you don't like it, you can go somewhere else, neglecting the fact that there is nowhere else for people to go. But Ang Hamarad, his idea of freedom is I don't have to work anymore. Like I don't have to labor anymore. Yeah. He goes somewhere else, and that's where freedom is. Right, and so I, I liked that like kind of inversion there. There is no death of rat sighting, unfortunately, and there is also no sorts sighting um, either. We're all out of sorts. Do you know what? I just I think it would be interesting if there was like a death for like the written word. You yeah. know, like when there all the different versions of death appear during uh, Reaper Man. Yeah, I'm sure there it, yeah, it is. is. It is Reaper Man. Yeah, like if there was something like that where it's like the letters that were destroyed in the fire, there's like a, a version of death for them. Or even if death like appeared in a different form for them. Is it a postman? Be interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be that'd be an interesting idea for a story where it's like they get delivered on the other side and then they're finally like put to rest if they're destroyed before being delivered. Fuck it. If there's any industry people listening to this, fucking hire us. We're geniuses. <laughs> We're geniuses because they are basically haunting the post office. Yeah. Like they can't like, move they're on. Alre they're already unquiet dead. Uh, yeah. So like, how do you kill the unquiet dead? Fuck, we're good. We're good. We're so good. Look at us. <laughs> and then I right here and right now, the world's best Discworld podcast. <laughs> yes. That we are the world's best Discworld podcast. Yeah, you hear that, Pratchat? You hear that? The truth shall make you fret. The <laughs> no, they're both they're they're all lovely people, um, and I like their shows a lot. 
The first footnote is on my page 43. So again, a little bit later in the book than we've gotten footnotes before. This seems to be a thing that is happening more and more in these books. But yeah, like footnotes are like nearly being sidelined for telling like complete and really complex stories. Yeah, yeah, kind of. When Grote is explaining some of his medical theories to Moist, he says, Sorry, sir, shouldn't have used slang. Prunes as in syrup of prunes, sir. Dimwell slang. Footnote. Dimwell, a rhythmic rhyming slang. Various rhyming slangs are known and have given the universe such terms as apples and pears, stairs, uh, rubbity dub, pub, and busy bee, general theory of relativity. That made me laugh. The Dimwell Street rhyming slam is probably unique in that it does not, in fact, rhyme. No one knows why, but theories so far advanced are, one, that it is quite complex and, in fact, follows hidden rules, or two, Dimwell is well-named, or three, it is made up to annoy strangers, which is the case with most such slangs. This felt like a very uh, UK joke to me, and it's not that the US doesn't have its own communities with its own slangs, but this just felt very much like a Britishism to me oh no it very much is like the the apples and pears thing is literally cockney rhyming slang that is what cockney rhyming slang for stairs is so you have things like also like uh uh like can you adam and eve it for believe um or i a lot of the time people use trouble and strife for wife uh but then there's also like the french uh so technically verlan is a cant and not like a slang but like people use it as slang sometimes yeah it kind of shouldn't but what's really interesting about uh just to the thing of this is just linguistic nerdery to the thing of like non-rhyming rhyming slang uh verlan is like essentially like uh where you invert a word um and it took me ages to realize verlan is uh verlan for l'envers which is the french for inverted but so the French word femme, which means woman, got verlande to meuf. Um, but then it got verlande again to femme, which I just think is really interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not a bad footnote. I actually thought there were some pretty good footnotes in this. We've been kind of complaining about the lackluster footnotes for some of the last few books, but I actually enjoyed quite a few of these. Did you have a favorite footnote? Uh, yeah, that one was quite good. I really liked People, uh, when they're talking about the library, people flock in nevertheless in search of answers to those questions only librarians are considered to be able to answer, such as, is this the laundry? How do you spell surreptitious? And on a regular basis, do you have a book I remember reading once? It had a red cover and it turned out they were twins. Strictly <laughs> speaking, the library will have it somewhere. Somewhere it has every book ever written that ever will be written and notably every book that is possible to write. There are not on the public shelves, lest untrained handling cause the collapse of everything that is possible to imagine. Footnote. Again. <laughs> again. Yeah, the footnote again there. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, no perfect comedic timing. I loved that one. I also really liked the one um, about uh, Anoya, a minor goddess of things that stick in drawers. Footnote, often yeah. not uniquely a ladle, but sometimes a metal spatula or rarely a mechanical egg whisk that no one in the house admits to ever buying. The desperate, mad rattling and cries of, how can it close on the damn thing but not open with it? Who bought this? Do we ever use it? Is as praise unto Anoya. She also eats corkscrews. I mean, it makes sense. Something divine has to be happening with kitchen drawers because it's ridiculous. It, it actually is ridiculous how kitchen drawers are like that. Yeah. 
I also just love the line. She also eats corkscrews because she it's also said eats in the same. Yeah. yeah, it's also just said in the same way that people like look at a photo of John F. Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy, and they're like, they look like they eat sheet metal. And it's yeah. like, what? <laughs> what a what a what an observation to make. What's something that made you laugh? It's something uh, along the same lines as like it, it's a joke that we've seen that we've seen a couple times with like banana where like you know how to start spelling it but we don't know we don't know when to stop yeah and it's uh hold on in chapter five yeah so sorry about that he slurred you're a good man so i'm not going to give you this can't keep it in a house can't keep it not with veterinary spies on me can't burn it neither <laughs> it's got everything in it which is uh if i remember correctly that's drunk crispin is it i yes. believe that yeah. is correct yeah yeah can't stop don't know when to stop <laughs> well something that made me really laugh and it's so like hilarious like, we get a little bit more of the old rid coley in the gang in this one as we mentioned and yeah. i i just always like seeing them like they they do not ever miss in terms of the comedic timing of those characters but i think the entire conversation between Rid Coley and Mr. Collarbone, Devious Collarbone. Just, what a name. What a name. And I, I just every interaction between the two of them was great, inclu- up to and including him saying we, it's that damn fiery eye again, which like is brings up, you know, images of like Sauron from Lord of the Rings. But it's actually just Devious being too close to the Omniscope, which I thought yeah. was very funny. It's but like every my, time you video call uh, an older relative. <laughs> Yeah, but my favorite my favorite joke in here is how he gets so mad that Reacher is like trying to boss him around that he starts promoting Collarbone out of spite. Yeah, like so, like he says, "Continue, Mister Collarbone." I, I, I. That's an order, Doctor Collarbone. <laughs> and then later, Vetinari calls him Professor Collarbone. Because that's that's a footnote. Then Arch Chancellor Ridcully was a great believer in retaliation by promotion. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't have civilians criticizing one of his wizards. That was his job. Like Collarbone is literally just trying to like live his life with his fixation on uh, shellfish, right? And uh, you know they're all like trying to get him to do this thing, and they keep like promoting him. It's just very funny. Yeah, I, I just one other thing that I thought was really funny was just because it's something that like my mother used to say every time that we like asked for something like a lot. And like, I, I guess this is like a like, you know, coming from not having a lot or something. We just like put that pen back this minute. Do you think I'm made of pens? Yes. Just the phrase. Do you think I'm made of blank? Yes. Oftentimes money. But just I Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm familiar with that. We have that phrase here too, and it's it's a oh, it's is a it? One. I just feel yeah. very like entrenched in my childhood. It might actually just be a mom thing, <laughs> like yeah. But yeah, no, I'm I'm familiar with that phrase too. It was it's good. What's something that made you think? So there's a lot in this, like obviously uh, that goes back to like like we were saying that deals with like systems being unequal and like how venture capitalists capitalism is ruining things you know like when banks fail the sullen bankers who starve the false like statement they put out you know where it's like it, oh yeah how we're going to improve it you know like all that like corporate buzzwords they have on that where it's like saying nothing but it's chock full of words 
yeah. to make it seem like they're saying something. But what really made me think was um, when they're talking about like the the dead signalman, and we uh, they say we keep that name moving in the overhead. And it seemed to Princess that the wind and the shutter arrays above her blew more forlornly, and the everlasting clicking of the shutters grew more urgent. He'd never have wanted to go home. He was a real linesman. His name is in the code, in the wind, in the rigging, in the shutters. Haven't you ever heard the saying, a man's not dead while his name is still spoken? And first of all, that's drawing on like something like which is at least as old as ancient Egypt, where it's like, you know, if your monument was there, like that was how you're remembered and there's like instances of people trying to like in ancient egypt destroying monuments so people wouldn't be remembered yeah but it really made me think have you played the game kentucky route zero i have not i've never heard of this game i'd really recommend it it's uh it's this game about like essentially like how the like heart of small town america is dying because of everything going corporate and to like these big stores and like you know delivery services and things like that how like all the like little people are being phased out so it's about this guy and he has to make one last delivery in his furniture moving truck but like it's to an address that like no one can find and so he gets on this like mysterious highway and it's all these like like you go through like exploring these like broken landscapes of middle america it's it's really really affecting and you see like how like economic downturns and being outpriced by stores like amazon who are operating at a loss to cut people out like are affecting people it's really good but just that like we keep the name moving in the overhead reminded me of that it was something that like like i was left lord by the game and i've been thinking about it ever since so that really stuck with me this is a recommendation to everyone play kentucky route zero yeah no i think i think that that's really interesting and it, it is very i liked at the end where she says she didn't know what scared granddad more that it was possible or that it wasn't possible yeah that goes back to the hope thing again because it, it probably isn't true but it might be I actually, the thing I had written down was the thing you had mentioned before about uh, Reacher's corporate speak. And I'm going to, I'm actually going to read it because I, I challenge anyone, this was written back in 2004, but I challenge anyone to say that this is outdated because so many of these things are said by corporations now, even like some of these specific words, like for an example, without like getting too into it, because I don't want to get anyone in trouble. Um, I had a, I have a friend who, um, her company just like had a bunch of layoffs and the way that they phrased it is like, like budget cuts, which makes it sound like it's not about people that it's about money. Yeah. And so like stuff like that is just so insidious and like just the way it's put here, it was garbage, but had been cooked by an expert. Oh yes. You had to admire the way that perfectly innocent words were mugged, ravished, stripped of all true meaning and decency, and then sent to walk the gutter for reacher guilt. Although synergistically had probably been a whore from the start. The grand trunks problems were clearly the results of something mysterious, some mysterious spasm in the universe and had nothing to do with greed, arrogance, and willful stupidity. 
oh, the Grand Trunk management had made some mistakes. Oops, well-intentioned judgments, which with the benefit of hindsight might have regrettably been in some respects an error. But these had mostly occurred, it appeared, while correcting fundamental systemic errors committed by the previous management. No one was sorry for anything because no living creature had done anything wrong. Bad things had happened by spontaneous generation in some weird, chilly, geometric other world and were quote, to be regretted, footnote, another bastard phrase that would sell itself to any weasel in a tight corner. The Times reporter had made an effort, but nothing short of a stampede could have stopped Reacher guilt in his crazed assault upon the meaning of meaning. The Grand Trunk was about people, and the reporter had completely failed to ask what that meant exactly. And then there was this piece called Our Mission. Moist felt the acid rise in his throat until he could spit lacework in a sheet of steel. Meaningless, stupid words from people without wisdom or intelligence or any skill beyond the ability to water the currency of expression. Oh, the Grand Trunk was for everything, from life and liberty to mom's homemade distressed pudding. It was for everything, except anything. And that's like, that is so perfect in its description of the way that corporations try to make themselves sound like people like family yeah and yet and yet do incredible harm you know like everything is is a euphemism for something else they don't really they seem to stand for everything but they don't really stand for anything i think that was perfect whenever whenever you're at a job like the moment they start referring to that as a oh, that you're a family that's like you that's need a red to get flag yeah yeah i would never take a job where they expect where they express that in the interview. That to me is, it's a red flag about how you're just going to be worked to death. Yeah. Hey kids, some more words of wisdom. If you ever see an advertisement for a job, or if they say to you that there's an incredibly high turnaround and employees get out, that's a red flag. Yeah. You should, no, you should start put to learn these things. Position. Next episode, we learn more about that game. Vetinari's playing in his office. And the watch must prevent the reignition of a centuries-long cold war between the dwarves and the trolls. Remember how this was a theme for a long time? It's going to come back. They're going to have yeah. to do it by investigating the original crime, Coombe Valley. What actually yes. happened? Also, the children's book, Where's My Cow? We will be talking about that as well in the episode. Um, yeah, so... If you're reading along with us, read both Where's My Cow and Thud. This is like the shortest time we've gone between two short stories. Because like the yeah. last time we were like, God, it's been so long. And this is literally like two, like two down the line. I and mean, we've got another one. It's actually the last short story we're going to talk about. And it is a children's book. Um, so yeah. Unless I'm... a stroke of the pen. Yes. Unless, unless something new comes out. <laughs> Well, it has come out. It's yeah. just if we do it. If we, we, we should talk, yeah, it. if we, we might decide to do that after we're done with the Discworld. I don't know how much of it actually ends up in the released episodes because I don't, as a rule, listen to them when they come out. Uh, right. Because I hate the sound of my own voice. But like, I don't know how much of like every time we're like, God, I wonder should we do this actually makes it into the, <laughs> the I final mean, I episode. Think we should. I think we should. It's just this is going to be the last Discworld short story because a lot of the stuff in A Stroke of the Pen is like pre-Discworld. But yeah, no, I definitely think we should do other Pratchett material for sure. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find me on X uh, as at Spicy Nigel, where I've been tweeting about Loki, 
I've been tweeting about horses. Uh, also, the fact that I nearly got trench foot yesterday, uh, which I, is, it's so it's so funny. The fact that I nearly got a centuries old <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, condition uh, because I stood in a puddle and then just put on wet shoes again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My shoes were like that waterlogged that I literally soaked through two separate pairs of socks while I was at work. So that was hilarious. Um, I'm also on Blue Sky. I don't use it that much because just the pain of trying to use so many apps. But I'm Spicy Nigel at BeSky.Social. On my headphone, on headphones, here on Nanyang's Book Club, Hyperfixations, which is still dormant because we're trying to like get a whole season together so we can drop that regularly and then like take an official break to record another season. This won't be coming out till next month, right? Yes. So end of November. Yeah. So by that time, there should be like officially a new actual episode of Among the Stacks out. We're back. Lovely. I'm excited. Yeah. This one's a, a horror one, which we're going to be releasing for World World Audio Drama Day, which is the day before Halloween. So it's like really thematic. You can find me no longer on X. I deleted my account, but you can find me did on you? Blue Sky. Yes, I did. Oh. I could not handle it on there anymore. Well, don't you know, if you want to ever make that account again, you got to pay a dollar. Uh, you can find me on Blue Sky. Such a, with more such trans a people. fucking moron. Yeah. At the byparadox.bluesky.social. Um, you can also find my writing on MovieJohn. Um, that's moviejawn.com. Let's see. I released an article. Um, it's the second part of my Hundred Years of Dracula. I wrote one last year. I wrote a second one where I looked at si six different, six more um, versions of Dracula on the screen. That was really a fun project that I got to write about. I love Dracula. I love vampires. So that was really fun. You should listen to the audio drama adaptation of it called Regarding Dracula, like or E colon, like in an email. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's really good. They're doing like the Dracula Daily thing where they were like releasing it chronologically. I uh, love based Dracula off of the, Daily. The dates. Yeah. And this is like an audio version. Um, so oh. it's really good. Like it's pretty much over now because it ends in like November. Right. Yeah. No, but, I'll definitely yeah. have to listen to that because I love I love Dracula Daily. Also, uh, by the time that this comes out, I will have an extremely long uh, <laughs> Uh, article on Robbie the Robot from Forbidden Planet and the Invisible Boy. That's going to come out um, here in a couple of weeks, but it will be out by the time this episode has come out. Um, I also was on our friend Lazi's podcast, Asimov Cast. Um, we did a special episode. Actually, it was a two. It ended up being a two-part episode where we just like nerded out about androids for like an hour. So you can find that my me on Asimov Cast um, over there. I am also. I've also been guesting on. Our friend Lazzie and Elise's and Melissa's. <laughs> um, so there's several hosts on that one. They have a True Blood rewatch podcast, and I have been on a couple episodes of that as well. It has been very fun. That show is ridiculous, and I love it so much. Um, so you can. I'm find not that. aware of this podcast. What's it called? Yeah, so it's Fang Bangers with a Z Pod. A chaotic horny podcast about the chaotic horny HBO show. Okay. Gotcha. 
It's very fun. Um, they kind of have a rotating host list and a rotating guest list. So I'm on two of the seasons um, or two of the episodes for the first season. I'm going to be on two episodes, including one of my favorite episodes of television that has my favorite meet cute of all time on the second season. So I'll be looking for that as well. You can find this podcast still on t- on X slash Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. You can also find it on Blue Sky at Nanny Ogg's Book Club dot Blue Sky dot social and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. This feels weird reading the like uh, the postscript yeah. thing because it like it has such it has less a satisfying conclusion than the normal book, which has like a typical Discworld ending. But anyway, this is the last bit of the book. The usual packets, my lord, the Uberwald one has been most deftly tampered with. Ah, dear Lady Magalotta, said Venonari, smiling. I've taken the liberty of removing the stamps for my nephew, my lord, Drumnot went on. Of course, said Vetinari, waving a hand. Drumnot looked around the office and focused on the slab where the little stone armies were endlessly in combat. Ah, I see you have won, my lord, he said. Yes, I must make a note of the gambit. But Mr. Gilt, I notice, is not here. Vetinari sighed. You have to admire a man who really believes in freedom of choice, he said, looking at the open doorway. Sadly, he did not believe in angels. The end. <laughs>